Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. Matthew, it's been far too long since you and I have sat together to put our brains together to form one functioning brain to discuss the furtherance of Dune. When we held hands like Aaliyah and Lady Jessica, feeling each other's emotions, becoming one being in sync. If only the water of life took place when I was being born, I wouldn't be this dumb. (laughs) Right? (laughs) If I just had the memories of all of my ancient mothers and aunts just smushed into my brain, I could be probably at NASA by now. There you go. Yeah, maybe. You might own a company or two. You probably sell electric cars. Who knows what? <laughs> Who knows what I could be getting up to? But today, Matthew, we're we're excited to be back. I am. I don't want to speak for you, pal. But uh, ju- today we're doing chapters 40, 41, and 42. And I think we're kind of just rolling three chapters till the end. I think there's going to be, this is episode 11 you're listening to now. You're going to hear episode 12 and 13. And then we're done officially with the book. And if we end up doing a wrap, maybe we will. Um and that's it. So there's nine chapters, buddy, and we're going to get through three of them today, and uh, we will know the fate of House Atreides, Paul, Jessica, Aaliyah, Cheney, Stilgar, and all the merry band we've come to love along the way. And chapter 14 uh, is going to get right into things, but uh, let me go ahead and turn it over to you for just a second. Yeah, no, dude, I'm really looking forward to this. I, you know, <clears throat> in the, especially in this first chapter that we're going to get into... It's another one of these areas of the book that I think dives into things that are genuinely difficult to describe. And Herbert does this excellent job of still somehow making it visual. And, and I think gets, it gets across some really abstract ideas in really active kind of just interesting ways. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to how that's going to be adapted to film. That's another, I keep hitting points in the book now where I'm like, Ooh, how are they ever going to do this in the movie? And I'm looking forward to seeing how they tackle the challenge. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, our last recording episode 10, we recorded before Dune came out. It was right, right before it was in October of 2021. So we're looking at six months later, <laughs> we're sitting down to record again. Now that we've seen the movie, now that we know what the movie is, uh, we did discuss that movie on the Lost Driving podcast, which you can check out over there. And we might throw it in this feed. Not sure yet. But this is going to be one of those chapters and the next chapter, to be honest with you. The next chapter, a little easier um, because Jessica's kind of having a lot of in, uh, a lot of dialogue with people around her. She has some thought, but but this one with Paul and what's going on with Paul, I think is going to be a challenge. But since we're not talking about the movie... Let's talk about this chapter. And do you want to read the beginning of this? Sure, sure thing. There is in all things a pattern that is part of our universe. It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons, in the way sand trails along a ridge, in the branch clusters of the creosote bush or the pattern of its leaves. We try to copy these patterns in our lives and our society, seeking the rhythms, the dances, the forms that comfort, yet it is possible to see peril in the finding of ultimate perfection. It is clear that the ultimate pattern contains in its own fixity. In such perfection, all things move toward death. Mm. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. 
Moadib's biggest fan. Number one fan. Let's start here because this is a this is a lot of this is word salad. There's a lot going on in <laughs> this right here. Um, what was your take on some of this stuff with this opening chapter from the collected sayings of Muad'Dib? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I find it kind of, I don't know if this makes sense, but I find it kind of difficult to dissect, mm. but, but easy to summarize, if that makes any sense. 100%. Like, I, the way I feel like I would summarize it is it's almost talking about the, the inevitability of falling into one's purpose like mm-hmm. one's ultimate purpose. Like you will find, you know, whatever choices you make, whatever paths you take, you will end up in an ultimate groove of, of purpose and destiny. And I think that the, that everything has a cyclical purposeful nature to it in nature as well. For sure. Yeah. One of the things um, I was thinking was I like how it's kind of three parts that this opening paragraph has three parts to it. It's talking about what the artist is trying to capture in so far as grace, elegance, et cetera. And then how you can see it just in nature. And then how we as people try to copy these patterns and gaining comfort from it. I I like the idea of getting comfort from patterns and then to see the peril in finding ultimate perfection. That almost makes me think that there's this moment in life that I imagine if you sort of reach the apex and you've like, I've done everything I want to do. Everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. I kind of just stop trying and I begin coasting. I almost feel like it's in those moments because it says here, you, you, we, even in perfection, we, we find we're moving towards death. I would almost say, especially in perfection, we find we're moving towards death, right? Because if you're not, if you're not in the struggle, if you're not in the thought process of, I need to continue to try to accomplish and move, you hear the story, he retired and died two years later. He didn't have anything left to do, right? It, it, It almost reminds me of that a little bit as well. So it's interesting, man. Yeah. I think it's a good setup for this for this chapter because to your point, Paul is really considering lots of different paths. He is it's interesting. I wrote this down. So we we come in on Paul. He's imbued with spice. He's meditating on things past, present, and future. And all of these lines start to become blurred for him. This is where I think filmmaker will struggle, right? Yeah. Yeah. So his visions come to him as a memory, but they are for things yet to come. And I think that language really interests me. A potential future memory, or or maybe just because the distinction is more difficult for him to discern, right? He's set to ride the maker. It's a big day for him. He's going to prepare the ritual, all the necessary things he needs to, because this is a major step in him being a leader in the Fremen and just with the Fremen. Uh, we learn every boy at the age of 12 knows yeah. how to ride a worm, and, and Paul hasn't yet. And right. he's going through all of this stuff while he sits here and he's thinking, oh, is this a thing that's yet to happen? Or is this a thing that is yet to be? Or did this already happen? Imagine sitting there and thinking. You're sitting there right now, Matt. Yeah. You're sitting there and you're just thinking in your mind and you're <laughs> going, okay, am I thinking of something that's yet to be or something that's happened? Yeah. And having it be as, I think it's important to think of it like as vivid as your memory of yesterday is is as vivid as his visions of the future are. Yep. And it, it feels the same. Yes. Like it's all blurring together into this vision of like, it's just as vivid and real to me and feels experienced uh, as if I experienced it. But some of it happened in the past and some of it hasn't even happened at all yet. Right. And some of it is even only potential things that could happen. 
Um, Future and present mingled without distinction. Yeah. That has got to be confusing. <laughs> that has got to be chaotic. That's good spice, man. Ooh, that's good spice. <laughs> <laughs> He's like Cheech and Sean in the desert. It's funny. <laughs> but, but he describes, well, it is described as a visual fatigue, right? A constant necessity of holding the prescient future as a kind of memory that was in itself a thing intrinsically of the past. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is... That's what I like about all of this spice stuff, because this spice, <laughs> we're learning across, we're going to get three examples of spice consumption here. One about, one one with Paul, next chapter, one with Jessica, and then the also in the Jessica chapter, we're going to learn about how the spice imbues all of the Fremen in these moments, and how yeah. the awareness varies per individual. Paul and Jessica have great awareness yeah. Whereas from and just get kind of an awareness from it. It doesn't treat everybody the same because of their predisposition towards, say, psionic ability, if you want to even say it that way. It's not, not a word <laughs> ever used in the book, but they seem to be more inclined to get premonitions from it that seem to play out with more accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that's interesting, and probably we probably should wait to get into this, but like, I still think it's an interesting thing it brings up about the effects of the spice that the Fremen experience. Yes. Because I think they get a little bit of a collective consciousness kind of from it as well, like mm. in a very light way. Like they don't have a hive mind like the Borg, but they can kind of sense each other's like needs and things like that a little bit. Mm. Um, like it's a really interesting moment in the it's, next it's chapter. Almost like, it's almost like a piece of their mind turns on that was, that was dormant and that thing turns on and they're all networked. <laughs> right yeah they synced right? up their wi-fi it's it's like it's, it's like they're all become network but it's a buzz it's a low hum it's not like a big thing yes. it's nothing like it's nothing like a reverend mother would experience or of course paul himself right it's just but, sort of a almost even you could almost even say like a, a shared mood in a sense like I that like kind it. of thing you know yeah i like it um so paul has a very distinct memory he, he goes through a few different memories of which I don't think we need to go through all of those. But the one that matters is uh, is Hara, which is Jameis's wife, who reported to him, oh, there had been a fight, right? There had been a fight in a hallway, and, and he should know about this. And what we come to learn, Matt, is that a challenger had come to face Paul. Mm-hmm. And Cheney, of all people, Cheney dispatched this would-be foe of Muad'Dib with her own Chris knife. And, uh, and Hara is the one who reports this, and when Paul confronts Cheney about this matter, he's pretty upset about it, number one, because I think it's not necessarily um, intuitive that her stepping in to fight a challenger is the way, but she did. Right. And it's interesting when he confronts her because he would have expected to face a challenger to him, right? We know that the Fremen culture is very deadly, that the one in command can be challenged under the right circumstances, or maybe even not under the right circumstances, via physical combat which if you've seen the movie up until this point april 23rd 2022 the second half is now you know that that's the case you know that there was a there was a a a fight to the death yeah and essentially she's like listen some of these challengers in 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 layman's term she's like listen honey some of these challengers are losers okay they're not even worth your time and she also notes that now word will travel that muadib's wife dispatched a challenger and yeah. because of this you will see less challenges 
So it is, we understand, supposed to be kind of insulting that a woman would step in and take this challenge for Paul. But equally is the is the dishonor, maybe dishonor is a strong word, but the fact that she dispatched the challenger, it sends a message to all kind of would-be challenged. It's almost like saying, okay, a video game comes out and you're like, oh, the big boss is this giant spider thing. And then people start playing the game like, dude, I can't even get past the fucking goat guy. Like, <laughs> worry about the goat guy, you know? Don't don't worry about the spider. Right. So, so you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, have, you, have, you have no shot. If you can't beat the sub-boss, forget about the big boss. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Dark Souls will not forgive you, no. Yeah, and it's almost embarrassing. You're like, oh, God. I guess I'm not as good as I thought. I think that sends a message, right? Right, right. That they, and that they also just have to expect another layer of defense, too. Of like, it's not as easy as walking up and challenging him. It's like, well, you're also going to have to go through me. Yeah. Uh, just more shit you're going to have to deal with. Exactly. <laughs> and this was, and it's funny because remember, Paul is still imbued with spice. He's still in this meditative state. And he, but he does know. Paul tells himself, this was real, not born out of its time and subject to change. Yeah. So I like that distinction. Not born out of its time and subject to change. That's what he uses to cement reality, <laughs> right? He's like, I know yeah. it's real and I know it's of its time and of the subject or, and, and not subject to change. No possible right. futures, right? No possible pasts. Yeah. No, it's interesting the way like this, this kind of describes Paul navigating his own mind mm. and, and, and trying to almost like, I almost think of it as like him pointing his vision like a singular tube of focus and pointing it and trying to like to almost trying to to get a tube of focus to to you know point his direction and his attention at uh because everything is so overwhelmingly all at once. Mm. Yeah. It's a it's sort of a flood of emotion that comes into him. It you know it it's not unlike the internet. <laughs> kind <Which> of <laughs> outside of understanding its time and place. You, you know it, it is it is the ability to try and sort out information that will be useful to you. Because right. ultimately, that's what it boils down to, right? Any prescience Paul gets only really matters if it's useful to him. Otherwise, it's not necessarily useful. If it be, mm-hmm. I, 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 well, I guess that's solipsism. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is, he, if he determines, if it's something that ends up being actionable, then it is of use. If it's not, then he doesn't, it doesn't really matter to him. But how do you sort that out when you're high on right. fucking spice muffins? It's difficult. <laughs> and you're and you're the Muad Deep. It's very difficult to make those distinctions, I'm sure. Right. Right. But um yeah, this this gets into that entire discussion between him and Cheney. And um yeah, he he noted uh he noted there was a bit of a ferocity in her otherwise casual attitude when he was discussing this would be challenger that she dispatched herself. Yeah, yeah. And I mean there's also I, you get the sense that that this is tough for Paul this moment between the two of them because he is so much more emotional around her because mm-hmm. uh, he talks about having barely suppressed his anger and he tried to be talk to her reasonably because she's bringing up you know points that are correct and he's having emotional difficulty accepting them mm-hmm. and I think the strongest difficulty for him emotionally in this instance is that he says. Ex, with with a great exclamation, but he came to challenge me. And yeah. I think there's a part of him that knows how Fremen operate and the fact that somebody stood in for him, that means something that he, that uh, 
he thinks that that's going to mean something bad. Mm-hmm. We don't really know. So what I think is interesting about this moment in this book and in this chapter, we don't really know if that ends up becoming a problem. We don't know if Cheney stepping in and dispatching this jabroni is going to be a problem. We just know that it happened. And she says, which I've already hinted at, but I'll give you her exact quote here. She says, quote, and beloved, when it's learned that a challenger may face me and be brought to shameful death by Muadib's woman, there'll be fewer challenges, end quote. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, <laughs> I, <laughs> right, I guess. You've been a friend longer than I have. He's only been here a couple of years, we learn, right? Yeah, just, uh, just over two now, I believe. I wonder if they're gonna how they're gonna make that work in the movie, like showing two years in the desert. Okay, I'm guessing facial hair, facial hair on Paul. Maybe <laughs> is that the move? Is that the move? <laughs> That's the move. They give him a beard, <laughs> <laughs> cover up that boy face on Timothy Ol. Or no, what's I was going to call him Timothy Oliphant for a second. That's nice. not. That's not it not at all. Chalamet. <laughs> Chalamet. Jesus. <laughs> Um, I like this moment here. Still, there was about him a feeling of abandonment. He wondered if it might be possible that his rue spirit had slipped over somehow into the world where the Fremen believed he had his true existence, into the Alam al-Mithal, the world of similitudes, the metaphysical realm where all physical limitations were removed. Sounds like he's talking about the spirit world. Yeah. Mm. Next dimensional shit, bro. Mm, Going really deep with the spice (laughs) muffins, I think. But um, I like that. This is how he orientates. This is his mantra. (laughs) This is what a lot of 16-year-olds say after they accidentally eat a half a plate of pot brownies. They're like... I, this is re- I'm high and I'm, I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to call the paramedics. I'm not, you know. So what Paul does is he says, "I am I because I am here." Mm, yeah, that's his anchor point. I am I because I am here. His anchor point seems to be him. Yeah, it's the only constant he can account for, which is fascinating. The only constant he can account for is himself to right. be the matter he is. That's almost the, the only way. That's the, almost the only way you can even confirm whether he's alive or dead. <laughs> like, is he's like, well, I'm still experiencing things. I'm still experiencing it. I'm still here, and if, if being the you know the central focus of these experiences. So, mm. I guess I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this um this gets into a little bit more here where uh, there's a section coming up where it says, Jessica was fearful of the religious relationship between himself, meaning Paul, and the Fremen. Paul knew this. This is Paul's thinking. Um, she didn't like the fact that people of both Siech and Graben referred to Muad'Dib as him with a capital H, which if you read your Bible, you know that that's reserved for one entity and one entity alone. Yes, indeed. So, exactly what does this mean? Well, Jessica tells Paul Matthew that some of the Fremen are divided in how they see him. And I think this is very important. This leads to a discussion between Paul's use of religion in his leadership, right? Jessica's got information from her Sayadina spies. Because now she's already got spy networks going, Absolutely, she does. Why? Why? Gosh, she's a bad bitch. That's why. She's a bad Jesuit at heart. (laughs) She, she is a Benny Jesuit. She but, is. So the so Sayadina cool. spies are cool. So 
What people may not know, and uh, one thing I, I want to make note is we're actually recording this live on our Discord, and we got some people here for the first time, and and um, and for ease of if you if you some of these people haven't read this book that are paying attention to us in this moment of the recording, but one thing to keep in mind is that the Fremen have their own Reverend Mothers, right? We learned that last chapter or with well, the last few chapters because there was a Reverend Mother that put her life force for all intents and purposes, her chi <laughs> into, into Jessica and consequently into Jessica's unborn kid, Aaliyah, which is why Aaliyah is such a weirdo, which we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> but uh, these reverend mothers, so Jessica is a, Benny Jezra is a former ducal concubine of House Atreides. She's Benny Jesuit trained. Now she's a reverend mother of the Fremen. Her beautiful eyes now have the blue within blue hinge to them or tinged to them or tint might be the better way to say it. And she's going deep, as Matthew suggested. She's got what's called Sayadina spies. Sayadina is a Fremen term. And um, she sends them out to get information on what's going on in the CHs. And Paul just kind of, doesn't he kind of just brush this off? He says, Ma, religion is just a simple thing. And she says, uh, contraire. Religion is <laughs> not simple, my boy. Right? She sees this very complex. He sees it quite simple. He's like, yeah, it's, this is just the way it is. And she's like, but, but, but what about the, but what about the Benny Jesuit proverb about essentially the separation of church and state? <laughs> basically. That's kind of what she says, right? Do we have that here? Let's read that. Yeah. I, basically, it, it can kind of be summed up as saying, well, you know what? No, we can read the yeah. whole thing. Um, yeah. When religion and politics travel in the same cart, the riders uh, believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movement becomes headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thoughts of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. A mm. Bene Gesserit proverb. Ah, in other words, you're going to get momentum you can't control and you're going to fall off a cliff before you realize you've fallen. Right. Like it makes you too hasty. It makes you too zealous, I think. Right. Is it? Hasty yeah. works because if you have so much conviction in your belief, then nothing else matters, mm -hmm. right? This is, this is fundamentalism 101. You are, I am correct in my conviction, and I only am correct in my conviction, but it's very important for that conviction to be manifest because yeah. that's what I'm supposed to do, <laughs> especially <laughs> if him, or in this case, Muad'Dib, tells me so. And that's yeah. a dangerous precedent, and Jessica's not thrilled about this. Uh, it's interesting that she keeps having... She struggles a little bit with some of Paul's power, right? Yeah. Well, she and she's also talking about this idea of he. Oh, she says you deliberately cultivate this air, this bravura. <laughs> you never cease indoctrinating. Um, yes. And I think that's a really it's an interesting observation on Jessica's part because she's seeing how how actively her son is creating this legend almost about himself mm -hmm. um, and seeing the legend grow out of his behavior. Um, but at the same time, we, we come to find out that Paul's thinking in being that way in, 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 in kind of casting out, you know, this image to have influence over people is so that he feels that he has better control over his destiny with them, mm -hmm. that he can better steer them away from the jihad. So he thinks he's nurturing a sense of control that will help him in the long run. But Jessica sees the more dangerous aspect of it of, no, you're still cultivating a, a, a legend about yourself that is going to get out of control because it's not right. true. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and he also believes it's a unifying force. He literally yeah. says it's part of our mystique. You hear this a lot um, 
in the, in the probably the simplest way to discuss it is in a sport team, uh, in a sport individual, um, some great champion boxer has a mystique about them. Like, oh my God, you got to fight Floyd Mayweather. You, you immediately you're off, you're off, you're off your game. You're like, he's the fucking best. So <laughs> there's a mystique in that mystique is something that, that, that cultivating that mystique is something that he believes will be good for them. Right. Because yeah. he believes that will, it will be a unifying force. But as a Benny Jesuit proverb warns, this can become headlong and move faster and faster than you really think. And I like this idea because often you'll think of, okay, I've, cre- I've whipped these people into a frenzy and then in their fervor, they've cast me out and moved on without me. Yeah, exactly. Because the second you try to pull the reins back, like in the Benny Jesuit proverb, to continue the metaphor, the second you're like, whoa, they're like, no get fuck you like get out then and yeah. he's like oh I, I can't i've lost control <laughs> we believe in the idea more than you now yeah exactly yeah the second you is the second your conviction falters if you've already whipped them up into a fervor it's just too late you can't stop it and um i like how he puts it back on mom though he's like look you kind of taught me that right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is some benny jesuit shit i'm doing what are you talking about i learned it from watching you my i've been watching you forever what? <laughs> I thought this is what you wanted. <laughs> She's like, ooh, maybe not. <laughs> A war in my name. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <That's> nice. <laughs> um, uh, some other stuff comes up in this about um, Jessica's thoughts surrounding Cheney. Do you want to talk yes, about this? That she has not really fully accepted her as her son's, you know, wife. That mm. she kind of sees it the way she has described it as a marriage of youth. So it's not a marriage to be taken as seriously. A marriage of youth means a marriage of love. That's right. essentially what she's saying. Because that's not necessarily how her relationship started with the Duke. Even though she did end up loving him in the end. Right, right. Yeah. It's not political. Might, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's not really any political aspect to it and I, I think that's part of why she thinks maybe maybe that paul just doesn't have as good a control over it mm. yeah well there's a lot here um <laughs> with with this thing with cheney she admits i do love cheney right cheney is a is a comrade for all intents and purposes and right. she does admit to loving her and um and yeah i i like that jessica admits as much and we do know that i think i think Paul thinks that mom is less high on Cheney than mom actually is on Cheney. I think mom's higher on Cheney than Paul thinks based on okay. what we see yeah. here. I, I think so. I can't say for sure, but I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. It seems as much, but um, you know, this is just something he kind of bats around a little bit, but this, uh, this leads to <laughs> a, a small passage that I almost kind of missed, but there's this moment where Paul is remembering, he hears a balisette being played and he thinks of Gurney Halleck, of course. Gurney Halleck, whom he's been separated from, brutal. <laughs> and um, and he, he, we, we get this little thing that almost seems throwaway. I actually missed it and then I caught it on my second read through on this chapter. Gurney, whose face he had seen in a smuggler band, but who had not seen him. So at first I thought it was out of vision, but then I thought maybe he was out roaming around and saw him and then couldn't approach him because he has to still maintain his own death, right? Yeah, yeah. Harkonnen believe Paul is dead. If they thought Paul wasn't dead, they'd probably really be scouring the planet side looking for him. 
It's they good be, that they think yeah. he's dead because look what he's done in the meantime. He is him with a capital H. To these people, <laughs> it's which been building could up be, that rap, which could be disastrous for the Harkonnen if if things get touch and go right. right. But um, but yeah, I, I imagine that he was out pulling a King Henry, wandering amongst the people with his <laughs> cowl drawn low, like a mysterious Jedi, and he sees Gurney. He's like, "Oh man, if only I could go see him," because. What he hears now is a man named Chat the Leaper. He's a Fedekin leader of Death Commandos, and he's strumming his little guitar, his little ballast singing a song, which I'm not going to get into, the lyrics. <laughs> I never do that when I read books. <laughs> <laughs> I read them, but, you know. I read them, of course. Right, of course. And this gets us to some stuff with Stilgar. Stilgar, we know who Stilgar is. He's going to be preparing Paul for this ritual, or he has prepared Paul for this ritual, this becoming a sand rider, riding a maker, riding the worm, right? Yeah. Now, he has ensured Paul that he's ready for this, and Cheney's going to become what's known as a Sayadina of the Watch. So she has dual roles here. She's the husband of this man, <laughs> the woman, I guess you could say, of this man, which has its own responsibilities and purpose. But she's also going to take on the Sayadina of the Watch, which is just somebody who's there to observe that the rituals are being done in accordance with tradition. That's what I am led to believe here. Yeah. Right? And Stilgar and Chainley are routinely emotional about this. This is a big deal. Stilgar is as stoic as they come. But even he, his voice will waver at times because he knows what Paul must face, right? As we said, these... Fremen boys ride a worm at the age of 12. Paul's damn near 20. It's, it's more than time. And um, they can't hide the fact that they're both fond of Paul, even though they have to maintain these rituals and these rites. Right. Um, and the peril. Right. They know the peril he faces. It's just, again, and I think it's just such a good job of establishing and actually showing how culture affects people's choices and behavior and, and how mm. they express themselves and like just a true difference in culture. And now, you know, I just think it's very interesting to see a character who's now been with this culture for a while. Like, you know, he's been, they've been living among them for probably a little over two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they obviously have become one with them in a lot of ways and have truly adopted the Fremen way of living and, and, and of even like tactics and, and they have brought their own things to the Fremen. But at the same time, I think it's really interesting how, mu- how much we get to see Paul having to still play catch up. Because, you know, as, as we've saying, he's, he's too old for some of these traditions and he's having to do them now at this later age. Um, and it, it's, still, it's still a culture clash. It's still a Paul's culture, you know, trying to mesh with theirs. Like, I just think that it's seeing culture illustrated so vividly is, is hard to do. It's hard to pull off. I agree. Um, but I think it's done really well here. Yeah. And doesn't it sort of contrast Paul and almost say Baron, the Baron, the Baron's less right. interested in culture. We talked about this before. He's more interested in the individual because he's a master at reading and complicating individuals. He's, he's, he's a master manipulator, the Baron. That's why he's so powerful. That's why he's still around. Right. But without getting into the Baron with Paul, I imagine that, Paul, take Paul sitting here meditating and take everything around him, a person walking by, people within the cave, people talking, somebody being born, somebody outside, whatever it's, whatever's happening, somebody praying. <clears throat> and you just take the camera lens and you just start to pull it up, 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 up. And you just keep pulling it. And that's mm-hmm. Paul. 
Paul's awareness is so all-encompassing that maybe he's a little slow to culture, right? Whereas you almost feel like, in other words, his perception for, for as, as he's become more prescient, his perception gets so big that maybe the smaller things go unnoticed or even ignored in favor of big, you know, imagining right. a banner flapping in the wind and a great jihad and crazy battles and massive change and all kinds right. of big ideas versus the laser focus of like an individual, right? That's a good point. Yeah, that's a really that, good point. And that consciousness is just so expanded by the spice on top of it. Whereas somebody like the Baron, and I don't know if this is a great comparison, but I think you know what I'm going for. We'll have like laser focus on a guy like, say, Thufir Hawat and know exactly yeah. how to manipulate the one guy, like the one right. target that he can put all of his intelligence into. Whereas Paul is just, it's like, it's, it's like the, um, the silly thing that, uh, you know, uh, Einstein, the great genius struggled to tie his own fucking shoes. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like yeah. Paul is almost like that. Like he's becoming so aware of everything that's going around him that maybe these smaller things he, he misses or misinterprets or just is slow to take a little bit. Not that the Fremen culture would be an easy thing to understand, even for a royally trained Benny Gesserit fucking mentat. But it does <laughs> present complications when you're high on spice and getting visions of global domination. Right, right. God, you just reminded me of how many fucking titles Paul has at this point. <laughs> like, so many. It's like watching just... Game of Thrones. King of the Andos, seventh of his name, son of the fucking... <laughs> right, I mean, what are we? we? We got Paul Atreides, Usul... Yeah. Yeah. Muad'Dib, yes. um, the 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 sleeper, or was that was that one of them? I don't they, know. I can't remember if they actually called him that. There, there's at least another one I'm forgetting. Mm. The, <laughs> the boy, according to Mohayim. <laughs> the boy. The boy. Bring me the boy, Jessica. <laughs> sly rascal. <laughs> of the audio book. That's sly rascal. <laughs> Because she, she knows he's awake watching her. <laughs> he's like laying there as she comes into the bedroom. Yikes. The old witch. The old witch. But um, so as I was saying, these guys know the peril Paul faces. They're distinctly aware of the peril. Cheney and Stilgar especially so because they are of Fremen. And um, yeah, man, this is, <laughs> this is where we kind of get into Paul thinking about all of the things that he must focus on ahead of this test and how even Cheney herself is trying to keep his mind from spiraling, right? She even says, oh, tell me again about the waters of thy birth world, birth world, Usul. And he realizes, okay, she's trying to distract me, ease my mind of tension, right? Right. Get him thinking about something beyond that, something a little more concrete as well. But this, this section, I just want to read this as, as we get into this part. He saw that she was trying to distract him, ease his mind of tensions before the deadly test. It was growing lighter, and he noted that some of his fedekin were already striking their tents. So I love that. I, I love that sentence. It was growing lighter, and he noted that some of his fedekin were already striking their tents. What seems like a just a description to show you what's happening around you, I think is so much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Anybody listening to this right now, and yourself included, Matt, there's been a day where you had a very difficult day ahead of you. Something very trying was going to happen. 
It could be a surgery. It could be waiting for a piece of news. It could be taking a very difficult test. It could be competing in a very difficult sporting event. It could be knowing you're going to have to have the most difficult conversation of your life. Whatever it is, you remember these details. And you remember the thing that almost spurned on, like the, the things that were happening directly before it, right? He makes just this note, like they're striking their tents now. He knows like I'm one step closer to this test now, right? My bagel yeah. popped up. I know after this bagel, I'm having that tough call. I'm having that competition or, yeah. you know, it's weird, man. You have these, you, I know you it guys know what I'm talking about. It infuses it with like meaning, yeah. It infuses the tiniest little things with these details that you'll never forget you had to go to court, whatever it was, this a big fucking deal. And, and it's this, that these little moments, he's like, Oh, it's like, like just imagine this guy knowing he's facing a life or death test today. And you seem just like his, his wonderful lady Cheney's kind of trying to keep his mind at ease. And he's just like, Oh, it's light. They're striking their tents. Meaning, it's, Oh shit. Yeah, it's coming. Shit, it's, it's today. That's now their tents yeah. are coming down. We're not sleeping anymore. Shit. It's not, it's not the night before. It's the right. day of. <laughs> it's the day of. Exactly. Exactly. It's very, very fascinating that yeah. a, a simple sentence like that carries a lot of weight because he's a master storyteller. Go figure. I, in Dude, case you didn't know, day. has anyone said it? He's been around since the sixties or am I the first to tell you guys how great Herbert is? <laughs> <laughs> Bold takes here at LSG <laughs> media. Ooh, Herbert baby. was a good writer. Absolutely. <laughs> it's fucking true though man it's yeah. so fucking true like i I'm, I'm impressed at at not just the description of of you know just the descriptions in general but of what he's capable of describing exactly. <laughs> where i'm like i i am like i don't know if i could have ever described you know some of these abstractions of thought as yes. well as he does we should talk a bit about Aaliyah because Aaliyah comes up. Yes. Speaking of an abstraction that became a reality. <laughs> so Cheney and Paul are just chit-chatting and they're talking about um, this siege, which is far away um, and how they might end up seeing it someday and how she talks about how it's a lonely place without the men there, etc. And Paul wonders, wow, this doesn't sound like a pleasant place. She corrects him by saying, oh, no, no, the children there are pleasant. We observe the rights. We have sufficient food. Sometimes one of us may come north to be with her man, and life must go on. Children makes Paul go, ah, so about children, how is my sister Aaliyah being accepted by the people? And this brings <laughs> us into a pretty important moment. So Aaliyah's strangeness is apparent. Yeah. Aaliyah's what, two? Aaliyah's yes. a two-year-old. A two-year-old. So I'd keep that in your mind the whole time we're talking about Aaliyah. Two. Two years old. <laughs> and remember, she was within the womb of Jessica when Jessica did the water of life ceremony. And as a result of this water of life ceremony, which we described in great detail, I think last episode, yeah, this imparted incredible knowledge and experience onto this yet to be born child. And when she was born and now at the age of two, her awareness is just unmatched, not just for children, but for f adults. She has fully developed language. She has intellect. She, and this is just unheard of. This is very strange, especially amongst the Fremen, right? Right. That this is crazy to them. They, they're like, and, what? This kid is really weird. What's going on? And I think the most, it's probably the most striking thing about Aaliyah that makes her so, so particularly strange. I mean, that's like, that is the word that, you know, the book uses is that she is just 
self-aware she just has a complete total awareness of self and of her own like sense of being and 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 who what made her what she is and why she you know she like she's capable of of self-reflection and you know again she's two years old (laughs) two and it's just unnerving self-reflection to the point of knowing everything she needs to know before literally being born yeah i mean that's wild and it's a disturbing revelation for the Fremen, and it causes concern among the tribe. Uh, the word witch has come up. Not a good word. <laughs> not, not amongst these folk. And, yeah. uh, and Jessica is really having none of this, right? And Cheney doesn't, Jessica's not here, but Cheney and Paul are talking just to sort of reset the stage here about Aaliyah. And, and Cheney doesn't really get into a lot of the specifics here. We're actually going to get a lot of that next chapter. But the, she just tells Paul that I think it's something like her strangeness is being noticed. Yeah. And it's causing murmurings. And some people think maybe she's got a demon in her. Just a thought. No big deal. <laughs> it's, it's what some people say. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and even Paul himself has had visions of trouble over Aaliyah. So Cheney saying this confirms Paul's own visions about just swirling trouble around Aaliyah and what right. that means, right? Exactly. That there that there that is a stormy potential path it revolves around Aaliyah. Pretty much every every action that can be taken will be still something difficult. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Um there's a quote here that I think requires lots of discussion. <laughs> oh, I think I, I think I know the quote you're talking about. Is it quote, give us, give as few orders as possible. His father told him once long ago, once you've given orders on a subject, you must always give orders on that subject. The Fremen knew this rule instinctively. Um, this comes up because as they're chit chatting, there's a, there's a distant roll of thunder to which Cheney poetically calls it the voice that beautifies the land. And then uh, most of Paul's men started stirring at this time. As, as, we, as we know, tents have been struck. The sun has come up. Chaney and him are talking. Aaliyah comes up. This is all just chitter-chatter, not meaningless, but chitter-chatter ahead of the big tests. And uh, as the men were stirring out of their tents and moving on, they started to, you know, come in from the, the rims. Everything around him moved smoothly in the ancient routine that required no orders. So all everything that's everything the Fremen are supposed to be doing in accordance with today, this big day is just being done and nobody's telling anybody to do anything. And that brings us to this quote. Yeah. And I think a big part of that too, kind of as a preamble to that quote, like it shows how much a, a culture of very rigid tradition can, can continue for so long. Mm. Because everybody fulfills fulfills their roles just without having to be told. Like we, everybody knows what needs to be done and just does it. Right. Um, and, and because there's a prescription for everything in a culture like theirs, where they're you know, oh, it's it's time for this person to learn how to ride a worm. We all know the ritual around what that looks like and what we're supposed to be doing, and and here's how we do it. Um, right. Everybody just knows these things. It's a part of of this shared culture the shared tradition so i think it's it's what makes their their culture so also like strong and Indeed. and it, it, it persists for so long and it's been it's been such a uh, survival you know centric culture and you you think that stems you think that plays into the quote of give as few orders as possible because once you do you always have to give them 
Right, right. And like yeah. it's like the Fremen already know this rule, and so they already kind of allow tradition and allow their understanding to move them versus a leader just having to tell everybody what to do every time it needs to be done. I like um, that. Yeah, that's a I, that's a good interpretation of what that is, and uh, and uh, seemingly a very correct one. And I like the idea of calling it tradition because think of how many people probably died for this tradition to take hold and be effective. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's not to say. Every Fremen does it. Maybe some don't. Maybe some fall. Maybe they get crushed. Maybe the worm does something they're not supposed to do or something gets fucked up. And then tragedy ensues. But, you know, there there is a lot of times people don't understand. A lot of times people like to buck tradition, myself included. But a lot of times there's tons of value in it because it is a time-tested way to accomplish something, either temporal yeah. or otherwise, right? The other thing I thought about this too is that, and now I thought of the inverse of this. Like we know what that looks like to the Fremen, but what does it look like when that, when that isn't the case, right? In other words, if you do, if you do, if you are giving orders and what's that going to, what's that problem? What is that a problem? And that's, I started thinking about it from the inverse, which is, I kind of thought, you know, once you, once you start giving orders to your subjects on a subject, you kind of eliminate man's or person's ability to take the action under their own volition because to be ordered to do a thing implies you have to wait to be directed to do a thing. Right. Did I say that right? Yes. Super yeah, convoluted. I see exactly, no, I see exactly what you mean, though. Okay. Because, of, like, it, it, the, within that idea itself is the implication of needing to be told. Correct. Um, right? It, I think so. I think that's implicit. Yeah. I think that's implicit, that you need to be told. Once I'm telling you to always do something, you may be like, okay, then if you're not telling me, I'm not doing it, since you're always <laughs> telling me to do it. Right. Right. And, and, it, and it robs it robs the individual of initiative, I think. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then the other thing I think is what it probably means more universally would be that once you, f as few orders as possible doesn't mean no orders as possible. Yeah. So what I mean by that is let's use LSG Media as an example. Let's use podcasting LSG Media as an example. Here's how I give, here's, here's my... Orders is not even the right word. Here was my, let's just call them order for sake of argument. Here's my order to Matthew. Matthew, we're recording at 8.45 p.m. And um, we're going to be talking about Terminator. <laughs> That's my order. My yeah. order isn't Matthew. Then I want you to say this. Matthew, then I want you to say this. Matthew, and I want you to definitely bring this up. Matthew, I actually made a cheat sheet. I shared it to the Google Drive. Those are the talking points this week. Because, because if I was to do that, I would rob Matt of his autonomy. I would rob Matt of his creativity. I would rob Matt of the essence that makes Matt who he is on the microphone. My order is be there and be you. <laughs> because that's what I, correct? This is, this, this is almost a yeah. fancy convoluted way to say, don't micromanage. If yeah. I tell you, please organize this filing system and walk away, I've trusted you with a major task of organizing a filing system. If I say, okay, one on this side, this is blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, well, fucking you do it. What do you need me for? Or am I just <laughs> yeah, a monkey? Or am real. I just a monkey to you? That's what yeah. I mean. Like as few as orders as possible could also mean that. Yeah. It's a matter of kind of respect. Yeah. Too. Respecting it's, your, of their, their people. Don't yeah. destroy their autonomy. Let them figure it out. Make, empower them by saying, I want this done, but not necessarily telling them how you want it done, just to, to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And I do that a lot. Like somebody comes to me and they go, I have an idea because I want to do X, Y, Z. And I've done this multiple times in Brycop and, and Matt and anyone who's ever worked with me. 
will know this. I just go, sold. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> hey, I was thinking of sold. Go ahead. Make it happen. I, I'm, I'm staying out of your way because clearly you know how to do this. I do it how you want to do it, you know? But um, <laughs> having been micromanaged as a, as a, as a youth, I can, I can assure you it is like kryptonite to me. I, I just oh, can't yeah. abide. But, yeah, um, that's shitty. It's shitty. But the Fremen know it. They don't even need, they don't even they need don't that need. as a tradition. No. Nope. They, they just the do f- it. Dude, the Fedakin, the Fedayin, fucking Fedayin. <laughs> Medayin. <laughs> I'm confusing, Oops. I'm confusing my death commandos. But, uh, <laughs> uh, Fedakin. I like, uh, I like there, the world is a carcass. Who can turn away the angel of death? What Shihlud has decreed must be. This is their chant. Cool. <laughs> as they rush into battle <laughs> as they rush into battle and today they're having they're giving a little chant for paul i would be concerned if the fedekin you know the death commandos were giving me a death chant on my big test day i'd be like hmm can i just go back to having spice beer and meditating because i don't like where this is going <laughs> this day's getting out of hand that's too funny Oh my God. No, the one, one thing I think is also really interesting too, that Paul is worrying about on this particular day, um, is he says, will there be a rock shrine here this day to mark the passage of another soul referring mm. to himself as dying? Um, and then he says, will Fremen stop here in the, in the future, each to add another stone and think on Muad'Dib who died in this place. <laughs> and I think one thing that's interesting about that is that it implies that even if he dies, he will still be this mythic figure that like we're, he's already come that far in, in establishing who he is in this, the legend of Muad'Dib that even if he died right here and now, he would be a mythic figure among them and might still be the martyr for their jihad. Like that's it might, amazing. Yeah. That's amazing uh, observation. Yeah. 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 Cause I, I think, I think it just goes to show how far it's already come. What I like about that observation is the idea that the Fremen don't change their mind. Right, they've decided you're Muad'Dib. You're Muad'Dib. Whether you embarrass yourself, fall off a worm, and die or not, you're still Muad'Dib. Right, and and that just goes to show you the frailty of life in the desert. I mean, in a moment, these people, most of them are no under illusions that they're going to grow old. <laughs> <laughs> not in the Fremens. <laughs> and and I just think, especially in a in a world of turmoil, and I think it just suggests that I, I could see if this was if this was written in a, if this had a different culture in mind, they would be like. Oh, he was never the Muad'Dib after all, because he couldn't do the worm. Right. 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 And that's not the case. And I like that. Because we're, we're past anything hinging on prophecy like that, like in Absolutely. that specific anyways. Yep. So Stelgar ends up showing up and um, yeah, he, he says, this is one of the coolest parts of this chapter. <clears throat> Paul's talking about, he, he thinks, I cannot do the simplest thing without it's becoming legend. So he's talking about the relevance of this day, not everything he does, but the relevance of this day, right? So Paul notes that anything he does this day, especially in this time, this day will become legend. He notes this because today is a day that will be legendary, riding a worm or dying on one. And like most things in history, think about this, Matthew, anything surrounding a legendary time, the details are always recorded, right? In in modernity, anyway, think of a moment that's frozen in history or legend, and all the details around it are known because we know things in our mind on days of legend. Right? Small details that elude our memory in our day to day are captured in moments where something truly special happens. It's just human nature, 
and it's right. certainly from in nature because they're very much an oral tradition. Um, so, so that is something. To say, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say something. I think it's interesting. Something of note will happen this day, no matter what. Either he successfully mounts the worm, and it's a a, a real coming of being for the Muad'Dib. Or the Muad'Dib died. <laughs> like, either way, it's a either legend. Way, either way, it's a big fucking deal. Yeah. And it's a legend, yeah. You know, we mark monumental occasions and we mark them with detail, right? Anything that stands out from the norm, I guess you could say. We almost hinted at this, the Fedekeen striking their tents, dawn, oh my God, it's today. That's a memory Paul will have. Um, mm-hmm. That's why this idea is not limited to just good things, as you just hinted, correct? It's not limited to good things. Anything today marked will be marked as legend. It could also be less pleasant things. Like if you think of a battle, for example, the winning side, let's assume the legend, there's a legend and the details are known, but it will, could also be remembered in the same detail by the losing side, a less than pleasant legend, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's exactly. kind of cool. It, it, I, I just like this idea that it must be, it, you, you, you hear about this in sport a lot, but people who... Or, or uh, think of think of think of um, think of Queen at Wimbledon. There, there had to be a moment where where Freddie Mercury was like, "This day is is gonna be a fucking day to be remembered forever." Like, I wonder if he knew in that moment when he was standing up there that this will be an iconic. That this is the moment. this will yeah. be, and you and you hear about this these moments where these people who are legendary or have legendary moments they know they almost probably have this anchor point. To pull them out of that, I can only imagine what that mode of thinking is like. Not a legend, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but the idea that this connection happens to the, and you go, wow, that was really, I mean, I've done things wrong with, that was really fucking good. Not a legend, though. But imagine that from that point of view. Like, you must be thinking, wow, this is happening. This is a legendary moment, and everyone's going to remember the way I flipped my hair, the way I twirled my microphone. They're going to remember the way I stood on a piano. They're going to remember everything. Because yeah. this right now is a thing. And that's kind of what Paul's going through. Even though he might get crushed to death by a giant woman. <laughs> yeah, that'll be, that'll be part of my legend. My body tumbling into the, to meat paste as I get ground into sand by a gigantic space worm. The maker took me four miles below the earth and made my little jam body spread it across a desert like dry toast. <laughs> Yippee. <laughs> Just a long streak of Paul. Yep. Oh, yep. Geez. He's around here somewhere, the Muad'Dib. He's <laughs> it was legendary. You should have seen it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so a couple more things in this chapter, Matt. But um Paul reflecting on the Fremen people scattered over the sand beyond Stilgar, the way they stood without moving for this moment of personal prayer. And he thought of how the Fremen people whose live whose living consisted of killing mm-hmm. an entire People who had lived with rage and grief all of their days, never once considering what might take the place of either, except for a dream which Leah Kynes had infused them with before his death. Think about that. Yeah. You live with rage and grief all your years. That not only is it all you know, but you wouldn't even know how to replace it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an alien. That's an alien thought to you. Wow. Right. And I think it's just, it's, it's fascinating 
the idea that they they outside of the dream of Leliat Kynes to terraform Arrakis, yes. they never had anything to hope for. <laughs> like right. they were just a survival based people. They were never mm. building towards anything. Right. Um, and so like now they have a an actual aspiration, um, which has changed them and one they can believe. And, and it's funny because and that's not that's not to that's not to take a shot at the Fremen. That's more to that's I think what's implicit in your statement there is sort of saying, listen, as much as we've talked about the Fremen through eleven episodes of this program, <laughs> I think you kind of get the impression that it's tough to have higher aspiration. This is Maslow, is that his name? Hierarchy of needs. Forget the fucking yeah, name. yeah. Maslow's. This is what this is right now, right? We don't have time for philosophy. We have to live. Like there's no we shelter. Not dehydrating, not dying of thirst, not being <laughs> destroyed by a worm, not being killed by rival tribes, not succumbing to the elements. Wh- where are we going to get our food? All of this stuff, you, you, that's, you know, wolves don't have philosophy. <laughs> fucking, they don't have time for philosophy. They got to figure out when they're going to eat, right? In the front <laughs> of the same way, it doesn't make them lesser. It just means they're in an environment which is impossible, just about impossible to tame and as a result, they're just sort of surviving. And yes, building tradition, they have family and language and legend. And they're, they're a real culture. They're real people. But they don't have the comforts of the Imperium, even though that brings its own peril, as Duke Leto will tell you. But that it's just a, you don't have time to indulge in higher learning, so to speak. Right. Right. No, comfort- that's true. Yeah. So they and and then they're just built on rage and grief. That's <laughs> people die that you love. That's going to cause rage, especially if it's unfair or yeah. 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 They've lived a tough, hard way of life forever, and forever. And in Liet, who we miss greatly, Liet Kynes. Yeah. First of his name. <laughs> we miss him. <laughs> <laughs> so still God's basically just telling him, listen, don't get fancy with the worm. Do okay. Listen, don't do any tricks. Okay, <laughs> just go out there, protect the ball, bring home the championship. <laughs> don't, just do, don't do anything dumb. Okay, ten yards, <laughs> ten yards. You just hold on to the ball. You go ten yards. Pound the rock up the middle. Don't fumble. We've got this. No We've fancy dancings. Yeah, no trick plays, kid. Just get on the worm and do what we told you to do. And I do love how, um, I, I can't remember if it's this chapter actually, but there he talks about how there's youngster Fremen who on their first worm ride try to do handstands. Yes. I just yes. thought that was really fucking funny. <laughs> just picturing some asshole yes. try, on a fucking gigantic, like four football field long worm piling, <laughs> pile driving through the desert, with, like wind blowing past it. It's going so fast. And some asshole kid is just doing a handstand on it, like for tick talk it's a thousand percent a reality because if you've ever known anybody who owned a dirt bike then you know that this is what they would do <laughs> they, right? they would do really dude and die my nephews uncle Dean. here we go you would be doing handstands on the worm my nephew would do a handstand on the worm that would happen anybody with a dirt bike would be doing handstands on the worm 
hog a curve in the chat hold my spice beer exactly exactly (laughs) Uh, we meet shizhakli this deep voiced gruff tough bird he gives the hooks they never have failed he tells paul so paul's getting all his you know go get her kiddo here use these and get up on there ride that worm (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and, and and he starts the mantra i am a sandworm uh, i am a sandworm i am a sand rider i am a sand rider right he tells himself i know i can do this <laughs> i i love how much this book makes a big deal out of this because it has we have gone through great pains to establish just how fucking huge these worms are yeah. and it's almost comical the idea of like all right go out there and call a worm straight to you here you go you have these long thin plastic hooks good fucking luck yeah <laughs> get on that thing <laughs> and then don't die somehow yeah. like it's crazy but it's also so it, it, I, I can't wait to get into when they're actually on the worm can it's you, just so fucking cool it's, it's like well you can surf oh, okay good can you surf a building that's falling down that's what i need <laughs> can you, you to surf do today. on tidal waves of sk- rubble can you surf a skyscraper as it's collapsing because that's what you're doing today good luck <laughs> good you luck this <laughs> if you die fine. still a legend you got you can- I, <laughs> I would be more concerned with that right that they were like well if you die you're still a muadib and you're still a legend i'm like no 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 <laughs> I don't it sounds like you're okay dead. with me dying i don't like this <laughs> do you know something i don't do you know i'm gonna die do you know <laughs> What has my mom been saying? <laughs> What's the point of being a legend if I don't get to eat grapes and relax in Golden Thrones all day as a exactly. legend? Exactly. Alive! Yeah, my dad's life seems so great, not stressed at all. Ay, ay, ay. But uh, we have to talk about uh, the worm in question. So, <laughs> oh, I did some math, Matthew. So we'll just jump to this. <laughs> it came from the southeast, a distant hissing, a sand whisper. Presently, he saw the faraway outline of the creature's track against the dawn light and realized he had never before seen a maker this large, never heard of one this size. It appeared to be more than half a league long, and the rise of the sand wave at its cresting head was like the approach of a mountain. <sighs> That's a good enough description, but let me get into the details. The minutia. One league, Matthew, is 5.5 kilometers. Oh, my God. This worm is half a league in length. Let's call it 2.5 kilometers. That equals 1.5 miles long. This (laughs) worm is a mile and a half long. (laughs) So, God. He's probably going... Oh, no, go ahead. I'll get the next one. <laughs> nah, I'll get the next one. <laughs> but don't you, I mean, you, you see that coming. You see this literal moving mountain, mountain. just coming, fucking mountain moving towards you. And you go, I'm going to be such a fucking sick legend dog. Like, that's what I'm going to be. Look at this thing. The opportunity of a lifetime. It's ultimate legend status right here coming your way. When you see the size of it, he now knows, oh, okay, so if I die, I'm a legend. I get it. It's like the guy who rides a giant wave in Hawaii and dies. Like, well, he's still a legend. (laughs) He still fucking did it. He got got crushed under fucking 10 tons of water, but ah, legend. 
<laughs> Yikes. Oh. Well, that is, uh, th- this is nothing I have seen by vision or in life, Paul says. He hurried across the path of the thing to take his stand, caught up entirely by the rushing needs of this moment. That right there, I really like. We, I mean, we kind of established it a little bit before this, but it really goes to show how much Paul, you know, in the beginning of this chapter, to contrast the opening lines with the closing lines, the opening lines of this chapter are are very much Paul in the midst of meditating and being so overwashed in time that he is not quite aware of what the present even is. Uh, uh, he's he's literally like floating in it just being like well i'm seeing this past memory wait no did this happen already no i'm not even sure i can't even keep up with where i'm at anymore to where now he's entirely focused on the present and this moment and he knows that i'm alive and i'm in this present because i am having to face this monumental you know challenge of taking on writing this you know bigger worm than anybody's ever seen before not only is it my first time be be gentle but this is the biggest worm we've ever seen and to um, break it down into something people can wrap their heads around you had a couple too few many drinks you're driving home you see a state cop behind you talk about laser focus to pull you out of that haze <laughs> like white lines, white lines, white lines, to 10 o'clock, three o'clock, 10 o'clock, three o'clock, move to the right lane. Yes, officer. No officer. Yes, officer. I will use my signal. <laughs> okay. Going to get off in an exit in a neighborhood. I don't know. Going to pull into a driveway of a house. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, not me, people, other, other people. And not people you, I've heard of. Definitely not you, listener. Not you, dear listener. <laughs> Well, that concludes chapter 40, and I think we're going to do chapter 41 next, a Jessica chapter, probably a long overdue Jessica POV, post-Reverend Mother chapter. <laughs> True. And um, yeah, I think I am up for reading. Yeah, it's, it's time for you. It's time for me. I got a nice short one. Here we go. Control the coinage in the courts. Let the rabble have the rest. Thus the Padishah Emperor advised you, and he tells you, If you want prophets, you must rule. There is truth in these words, but I ask myself, Who are the rabble, and who are the ruled? Muad'Dib's secret message to the land shroud from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. So, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a little <laughs> bit of a first, as in it's not from a book by, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's it is a note that was put in a book. book. It's, it's a, a note that was put in a book. It's a more yeah. deep scrapbook. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it wasn't something that the Muad'Dib wrote down or that Princess Irulan transcribed directly from him. It was a note he sent to the Landshrad. I think so. Matthew. Which is interesting. Yeah. Because we do know, <clears throat> we mustn't forget about the Landshrad. We mustn't forget about the Imperial, the, the Imperium's ruling council. The full weight of the Landshrad would be too much for any one house to contend with, including the Emperor himself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, here we are. Let's dive into this. So, Jessica's in a CH, we're led to believe. And essentially, what we got here is she's feeling secure. She feels secure and comfortable here. But this is contrasted by always feeling as if this place is alien to her. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I think, and I think that does definitely come back to. Jessica's sense of like 
essentially royalty and decorum and and you know that's the world she came from and the world she navigated for so long and got so good at navigating i don't think jessica ever anticipated having to completely adopt a whole new world again um and and figure out all of its customs and its ways of being and you know there's i think that paul and her are both still getting the hang of a lot of that mm. even at it's this funny point. that this is contrasted against paul who never makes mention of feeling like the Fremen world is alien to him. But that, that makes sense to me because Paul is 1819, so 1617, when he's pulled out of his world. Jessica's a royal concubine and a Benny Gesserit trained royal concubine and accustomed to living a certain way. And as a way of that living, when you're into your mid and late 30s, as however old she's supposed to be here, it's going to be change becomes more difficult the older we get, especially this kind of change. Mm-hmm. Paul yeah. seems to be rolling with the punches a little easier, but that seems to make sense. That tracks for how humans operate. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, yeah, this is a wild moment in this book where essentially she's doing her thing. Um, she knows that she can hear some drumming. She, she's in a resting chamber, but she hears some distant drumming. And she knows there's a birth celebration to be had. And we also know that she is uh, trying to keep her thoughts off her son. She understands that her son has faced dangers and that there are many pit traps, many poison barbs. Although, Matthew, she does know that the Harkonnen raids seem to have lessened in frequency. Yeah. Yeah, Possibly because of the natural protection the desert offers, such deep striking. <clears throat> right. Like they are, I think that's something that I'm not sure if we mentioned that most of the women and children have fled to the deep, deep south deserts. Um, and that is like way out beyond where even spice harvesting happens or anything like that at all. That's just too deep in the desert for basically anybody to assume anything lives. And the Fremen have like secret you know, secret, super safe sea etches out there. It's where the women and children mostly have gone since all of this kicked off with the Harkonnen, correct? Right, right. They That's one of the things fled. Cheney was referring to, like, oh, it's lonely without the men, but it's mm. nice to have the children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we know that, I think this term comes up, 20 thumper. So mm. the Fremen tend to measure distance by way of thumper. What does that mean? Well, you stick a thumper in the desert and it makes a ton of noise and a worm comes. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you know that this is the case. Then what one does is one rides said worm. And you ride that worm, in this case, let's just say south. And you ride that worm until exhaustion, which is an indeterminate amount of time, could be hours and hours. Now, something a mile long, if you ride it for a few hours, is probably going pretty goddamn far. And they describe some of these trips as to how many thumpers far it is, which is to say, how many worms do we ride to exhaustion to get where we're going? Right. And when they say these sieges are 20 thumpers south into the desert, it's of no wonder that the Fremen would never face any danger from the Harkonnen or very little. Be very right. difficult to travel that far to figure out. I mean, you're, you're facing possible sandstorms and all other manner of horror that the desert has to offer. 20 thumbers means you've exhausted 20 worms while traveling south. That is a far fucking distance to travel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Now, I remember I like it, the way the book introduces that, uh, like it, it explains it by introducing it. Like it, it's really cool. Like it doesn't have to say very much. You kind of just 
pick up on it. But I remember thinking, even though it introduces it by saying like, let's say 20 thumpers, I remember thinking that seems like a lot <laughs> like that, that instantaneously already feels like a lot to you. If you, yes. you'd think that, okay, maybe, maybe a, a day long trip is like two or three thumpers, Yeah, you know? And yep. it's like, when you say 20, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> once it, once my there. guess is once the worm starts to slow and they know it's exhausted, they hop off, they know they're in no danger. And then the worm has to recover. <laughs> so they, right. which is why, my guess is that's why they can drop another thumper not far from this exhausted worm and call another one not far from them. Or maybe they walk a few hundred yards up, call another one, and then go while that one recovers. <clears throat> I'll right. tell you, if the worms ever learn how to play possum, oh boy. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm so tired. They get off, it just crushes you. It, it just, just whips <laughs> around and rolls yeah. over on you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is something we hinted at when we discussed chapter 40 right, Matthew? We talked about this coffee incident. <laughs> it sounds ludicrous to say in a book like Dune, <laughs> but I'll read the text. We're talking back about Jessica again, and here we go. She thought of calling for coffee, and with the thought came the ever-present awareness of paradox in the Fremen way of life. How well they lived in these CH caverns compared to the Graben peons, peons. Yet, how much more they endured in the open hegir of the desert than anything the Harkonnen bondsmen endured. A dark hand inserted itself through the hangings beside her, remember she's like in a prayer chamber, mm -hmm. deposited a cup upon the table and withdrew. From the cup arose the aroma of spiced coffee. She thinks an offering from the birth celebration. She takes the coffee and sips it and smiles and notes, in what other society of our universe, she asked herself, could a person of my station accept an anonymous drink and quaff that drink without fear? I could alter any poison now before it did me harm, of course, but the donor doesn't realize this. She also goes on to say, I thought of coffee and it appeared, Matthew. There was nothing of telepathy here. She knew it was the Tao, the oneness of the CH community a compensation from the subtle poison of the spice diet they all shared. The great mass of the people could never hope to attain the enlightenment the spice seed brought to her. They had not been trained and prepared for it. Their minds rejected what they could not understand or encompass. Still, they felt and reacted sometimes like a single organism. Yeah. And the thought of coincidence never entered their minds. I love it. Bunch of shit here. Number one, she, she is not accustomed to life in the Imperium is if you are of a certain birth station, you just don't drink things handed to you from unknown sources, period. That's a foreign idea. Yeah. You don't do it. <laughs> assume, Troy, assume poison, assume treachery. It's just not going to happen. On top of that, and the other thing she hints at is this interesting physiology and biological control that Fremen have over their own bodies, their own chemical reactions. Anything she drank that was poisonous, she could render inert with her body. Yeah, yeah. That's why in the beginning of this book, she can determine what sex baby she wants to have. She can determine if she even wants to get pregnant. She doesn't have to get pregnant if she doesn't want to. I mean, God, God bless these Benny Jesuit women. Huh? <laughs> they don't need birth control. But seriously, there's no- <laughs> I'll just turn it off. <laughs> they just decide. They can decide all of this stuff. They can decide, they can, they can change compounds that enter their body. That's, 
you couldn't, they'd be difficult to sedate, although they, she does get sedated, but we know that it didn't last quite as long as the guy thought, right? When they had him in the ornithopter, but they're, they, they have a lot of biological control and her, especially now that she's a reverend mother. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about her is this now almost like microscopic level of awareness that she can have and, and exercise. It's really cool. There's um there's a book called The Dune House Atreides. It's a prequel by the Sun and Kevin J. Anderson, who wrote a Star Wars trilogy, and or and maybe more than that. But the uh, but one of the things that is revealed, so spoiler if you don't want to know a little bit about the Baron's origin, which you'll never get from the regular Dune trilogy. This is prequel stuff. But largely considered canon because it comes from Herbert's notes. Anyway, you can fast forward if you want to hear this. <laughs> essentially what happened with the Baron, he was this beautiful man once upon a time and he got revenge on a Bene Gesserit by raping her. Now we know the Baron doesn't like women. He prefers men. And, um, for him to decide to do that was just a, just a brutal attack. Not only did he brutally attack and rape a Bene Gesserit in that book, but he fired something. She got hit with a dart, like, like Paul, like Leto and was conscious and immobile the whole time. So there's no uh, fighting. But what he didn't realize is just how powerful Benny Gesserit were. And what she does in that book is she changes her physiology to essentially give him a brutal disease. And uh, that brutal so cool. disease is what wastes his body to what it is today. And in that book, it's interesting because he took such pride in his appearance. And then all of it is just laid to waste when, of course... He rapes this Benny Gesserit, who's like, I'll give you a revenge that's going to make me gloat daily about watching your body turn to shit. (laughs) It's really, really wild, man. It's really wild. So that's a good example of like exactly the kind of control Benny Gesserit have over their bodies. Fascinating. Fascinating. So the coffee. Put that coffee down. Coffee is for closers, unless you're Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica apparently is a closer. But um, talk to me about this, man. This I, yeah, no, I like think coffee. I get coffee. Yeah, exactly. Like that's you know she kind of alludes to there being maybe something, uh, it, it being a product at least a little bit of of the spice itself. You know, they're yes. all consuming spice, so they are all having it as a similar sort of chemical experience at any given moment. Um, and I think that and lends- no telepathy. She makes that clear. I think that's exactly. a huge point. She, in right. other words, she's like, I didn't beam, I didn't beam, I didn't Aquaman this, boom, 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 boom. no Aquaman, like communicating with the dolphins. It was yeah. just coffee, bang, coffee. I think it, it has something, right. I think it has something to do with both the, the being high on spice, um, <laughs> and then also being in each other's presence so much. Like they, they can almost sense each other. They all, they all have like a very low, low level. And I'm not talking about Jessica. I'm talking about like the, just the, the populace in general the of this, of the sitch. Yeah. The populace of the Fremen, um, that they all have at least have some low, low level of prescience enough to, to kind of sense each other through it. Um, right. Like un- almost unconsciously even like I, I bet, I bet, you know, she, Jessica has this thought that I would like some coffee. One of the people at the party had a feeling that I wonder if Jessica would like some coffee. I would, I think I should bring her some coffee and just, and just like that level of just unconscious communication of where it's it just kind of happened, which I think is so fucking cool. It is pretty intense. 
And, um, it, you know, it, 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 you brought this up earlier. You said they're not, you wouldn't call them hive minded like the Borg. They right. don't share a single thought process, right? They don't, they're not, it's not all of these from and make one brain, right? right. That's right. more of a Borg thing. Borg being from Star Trek, if you don't know. But this is more of a, and the other part about this that I like is, and the thought of coincidence never entered their minds. No, nobody was ever like, nobody brought her the coffee and, and was like, oh, how coincidental that you wanted coffee. And I brought, no, I know you want coffee, I brought you coffee. Yeah. And it might seem innocuous, but the book points it out because I don't think it's supposed to be. I think it gets into what you're saying. There's this hum, this, this, this frequency, this, there's a certain, it's, it's this megahertz, just <laughs> this certain wavelength. <laughs> and they're all kind of tuning their forks to it, their antenna. Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with the spice. Um, and the other thing I think it has to do with is one of the things we know about the spice is it can give people hyper awareness. The Mentats use spice to in to to help themselves, truthsayers, as it were. And I sometimes wonder: is it the kind of thing where people just begin to intuit things beyond just regular sensory perception, perception, not perception, because they are because their 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 senses have gone into an overdrive a little bit. And in doing so, like let me think of how I want to say this. If you and I have great chemistry, Matthew, our chemistry could work. This is going to be a bit convoluted. <sighs> you you I would argue we have great chemistry on microphones. We know the rhythm of patterns, we know the rhythm of speech, we can sense it. This is difficult to teach. This is something that happens over time or it simply doesn't, right? Two of us can do that. I, I talk a lot and then I shut up and you talk a lot. And we go back and forth and, and, and it's pretty smooth, I would, I would argue. Right. Now, imagine if we were operating physically next to each other doing some kind of work and we weren't talking. You'll see this with like, take a, take a carpentry crew, like my father's crew. When those guys were, they, they call it, it's, 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 the, it's the adjective humming. We're humming now, right? Everyone's doing everything they're supposed to do because they all know exactly what's supposed to be being done. And they're all watching subtle changes in body language, so, subtle changes in, oh, I know he's going to go for the nails now because I know that's this part of the job. And I know to get them in his hand before he right. even is at the base of the ladder. It's invisible. It's school of fish shit. Everything it's, can it's, operate independently, but within the same goal. Like correct. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, exactly. is it possible the only th the only place this gets a little tricky is nobody's actually witnessing Jessica. Jessica's kind of secluded in this this prayer area, this chamber. But her Darth Vader chamber. Yeah. But is it possible that through spice and through awareness that these people understand the rhythms of Jessica, especially when they are on spice influence and they are all acting in concert and they just intuit? I think it's coffee time for Jessica. Right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. seem that far fetched, to be frank. I think, I think it's. I think the immediacy in which he thought, "I want coffee," and got it is the science fiction part. Like, whoa! Like it was right there. It didn't right. take long. <laughs> exactly. But, exactly. Yeah. Like the need was almost anticipated. It wasn't just. It wasn't just heard. It was anticipated. I think anticipation is a big part of this. Yeah. Right. I think anticipation is a big part of us, and sometimes anticipation doesn't work because anticipation can jump the gun. Yeah. Right. There's read and react, and then there's anticipate. This this is in competitive sports a lot. If you you know any one on one thing you've ever done in competitive sports or anything, 
you can anticipate, I think this is what they're going to do based on patterns to date. And then there's the, I'm going to wait and see what they do and react and rely on my speed of thought and physicality to, to, right. to shoot what I'm saying. It's very yeah. interesting. Anticipating is a gamble. <laughs> yeah, Anticipating is this could, if I anticipate this correctly, great. If I anticipate this wrong, we've opened ourselves up to something worse. Possibly, maybe not. I'm sure there's calculated risk and anticipation, but read and react and anticipation, very different things. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, but this, this they react like a single organism. I, I love this. This just reminds me of a crew that's intimately familiar with themselves and their method of life times however many multiple hundred people it is and just watching them operate in concert, even though they are all individuals. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of amazing to see. It is amazing. We get a sense of time, Matthew. She talks about how there's so much waiting in the Fremen life. The Fremen life is just loaded with waiting. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> waiting for things. Right. Uh, more than two years you've been here, she thought, and twice that number at least to go before we can even hope to think of trying to wrest Arrakis from the Harkonnen governor, the Mudianaya, the beast Raban. I love this long play. <laughs> this yeah. is Dune. This is Game of Thrones. I like the... We're going to get you. It's going to be a few years, but we're coming. <laughs> yep. We're just going to sit back. We're, we're just <laughs> planting the seeds now. I, that's the kind of methodicalness that just gets me real excited. That real methodical <laughs> relentlessness. <laughs> like it's coming. You just wait. We talked about this on Walking Dead a lot. Negan comes over and he's like, whoa, ho, 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 and he leans way back. <laughs> Always and, leaning. And guess what I do? I kneel and I go, yeah, you're the master. You're the man. Because I'm already plotting your demise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Pride can go out. You think I'm going to sit there like the dumb guy with the red hair and be like, oh, I'm tough. Yeah, you're going to get a bat in the head. You dummy. <laughs> yeah. you, got you can be proud and dead. You're super tough and dead. <laughs> so what? No one's going to sing songs about you, you dummy. <laughs> the dumb guy who volunteered for the bat yeah bend the knee if i'm john snow fine i'll bend it i don't sure. care i'm gonna backstab you <laughs> mm-hmm. if it's not tomorrow it'll be in three christmases but your time will come <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i just love take, the i <laughs> i should probably take that sociopathy test <laughs> <laughs> i just love the image of of them being so deep in the desert and and just they have such freedom of movement that they can be training on worms and tra- mm. like making their forces stronger. We've already seen, you know, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but we've seen it referred to a couple times how, you know, they've all been taught the weirding way at this point or they're being taught the weirding way. Like that is that is something that Paul and his mother are are giving them and it's like I think it's an interesting sharing of culture of how it's like obviously they're having to adopt Fremen culture, but at the same time they have brought things as well and it's yeah. also strengthening the Fremen. Yes, that's a great point. Imagine turning a maker towards a a shield wall. Dude, exactly. I, mean, I, I hope we get some of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wanting to see some worm warfare. Can you imagine? Oof. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about the Reverend Mother's dialogue with Hara and with the introduction of some Aaliyah time. We've, we've <laughs> last chapter, Matthew, we've really teased Aaliyah the weirdo. And I think it's about time we give the good people a little bit of discussion about Aaliyah the Weirdo and, and Hera. 
And just as a reminder, Hara is Jameis's wife. Jameis yeah. is dead. Paul killed him in single combat. That makes Hara under the charge of Paul. Typically, this would mean Paul would take her as his woman. Paul, however, is with Cheney and has yet to uh, indulge himself with the pleasures of Hara, <laughs> which makes Hara feel a certain way and not a great way. Right, right, right. A little rejected. A little rejected, as is the culture demanding. So, Hara, her hair black, was part in the middle with swept back uh, and swept back like the wings of an insect, flat and oil against her head. The jutting predatory features were drawn into an intense frown. Behind Hara came Aaliyah, a girl child of two. Seeing her daughter, Jessica was caught, as she frequently was, by Aaliyah's resemblance to Paul at that age. The same wide-eyed solemnity to her questing look, the dark hair and firmness of mouth. But there were subtle differences, too, and it was in these that most adults found Aaliyah disquieting. The child, little more than a toddler, carried herself with a calmness and awareness beyond her years. Adults were shocked to find her laughing at a subtle play of words between the sexes, or they'd catch themselves listening to her half-lisping voice, still blurred as it was by an unformed soft palate, and discover in her words sly remarks that could only be based on experiences no two-year-old had ever encountered. So, so Claudia from Interview? Yeah, pretty much. You got a vampire baby on your hands. That's what you, you got. You got a vampire baby on your hands. This kid knows way too much stuff. Way too smart. It shouldn't understand these jokes. Can't even use her mouth correctly yet. It's not even formed correctly yet. Yeah. Yeah, and she can out-talk everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, she's, uh, it's a, it's gotta be a, almost a borderline disturbing sight to 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 see it's it's almost got to be like uncanny you know to to uncanny. run into this to to see a two-year-old walk into the room with like adult composure and just you know be, be able to start interrogating you or something where you're just yes. like wait a minute wait a minute like <laughs> that's not you're it's not supposed to come out of your mouth this is not this doesn't make any sense it's it's wild there's a contact of flesh between mother and daughter here and it restores this awareness that they had shared before Aaliyah's birth a matter of shared thought it said um there were bursts of that it, that if they touched while jessica was changing the spice poison for a ceremony right mm -hmm. pretty cool um an awareness of each other a sharp poignant thing a nerve simpatico that made them emotionally one so we have to not just talk about Aaliyah and how she is but also her connection to jessica and what that is yeah, which I love how we saw that get on like an atomic level. We saw that become established. Floating um, moats. <laughs> as floating moats. Yeah, like we floating saw that. Moats. It's almost like a callback to a scene that happened on a microscopic level. And now it's 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 like happening again on a human level um, between the two of them as as child and adult and, and having this strange, you know, physical relationship, this bond that like, you know, is allows them to connect not quite as like one. Like I think there's still a, there are distinct individuals, Indeed. but the way, the way the book says it, it makes them emotionally one. Um, and you know, and I think that that implies that they, they can sense each other completely, but yet they have complete awareness over themselves as well. Like full control over themselves. Yep. Yeah. It's cool. She opens with a playful insult. My brother's Ganima is annoyed with me, Aaliyah said in her half-lisp. Jessica marked the term Aaliyah used to refer to Hara, Ganima, 
in the subtleties of the Fremen tongue, the word meant, quote, something acquired in battle, end quote. <laughs> and with the added overtone that the something no longer was used for its original purpose, an ornament, a spearhead used as a curtain weight. That so is, this is very uh, insulting. Yes, insulting and such a great explanation for how it's insulting. <laughs> <laughs> Like, to just to get into the connotations of that one word, I think is so interesting. Indeed. That, like, calling you a, a paperweight, basically. A paperweight. That's the same note I had. Yeah. <laughs> You're a paperweight. Not, not just any old paperweight. You're a paperweight that I won in battle. So, yeah. if I take any heirloom from a battle and it becomes a paperweight, I mean, it it's a real fall from grace, you know? <laughs> right. It's a little disrespectful. Outside. It's a little disrespectful. You insult them a little bit. It's I can go bit. outside and I can get a rock and use it as a paperweight. The rock's position in its existence hasn't changed much, has it? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But if I take uh, Cal Drogo's hair and then one day my catcher just playing with it, it's kind of insulting. <laughs> you know, if Cal Drogo's hair that I took from him in one-on-one -on -one combat becomes something that my cats play with, that's insulting, insulting him a little bit. Uh, I got cat piss on my opponent, on my Hector's shield once again. <laughs> William Wallace's sword is just used as the other end of a clothesline <laughs> in some British guy's house. <laughs> Yeah, Some guy's using it to open paint cans. <laughs> <laughs> Thor's hammer is used to roof. <laughs> <laughs> so ludicrous. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> this is even worse because it's alive. Right. <laughs> Real disrespectful. <laughs> Real disrespectful. Oy, oy, oy. Well, <laughs> so I like how Hera is not afraid to tell the Reverend Mother, Jessica, she's not afraid to tell, in Jessica's presence, Aaliyah, to stop being insulting and that I know my place. I like this. This is Fremen strength. Yeah. Imagine, if you will, for just a minute how intimidating somebody like Jessica must be. She <laughs> can use the voice. She managed to incapacitate Stilgar in seconds. I mean, before she was a Reverend Mother, before the Water of Life ceremony. Now she has the Water of Life ceremony. Her son's walking around teaching people how to do jujitsu, you know? <laughs> he's got the whole place in an uproar because they can use crazy voice power he's teaching people how to do stuff mm -hmm. and now you're in that weird position where that real powerful lady you you see this all the time this is my favorite thing when people are really weak and like you know their <laughs> boss's kid mouths off and the employee just takes it <laughs> i'm like yeah fucking weakling <laughs> but not hara hara's like stop i don't care if your mother's watching stop it <laughs> it's great <laughs> <laughs> I'll mouth off to this Einstein two-year-old. <laughs> I don't give a damn. This weirdo. Her mouth doesn't even work yet. <laughs> so she intruded. So something happened. What's Aaliyah in trouble for, Matthew? Intruding, Why is Aaliyah being brought before mom? It was for intruding on the uh, the childbirth ceremony, wasn't it? Yes. And she was hiding behind the the hanging curtains and and watched the the birth and and then interrupted it by actually coming over and touching the baby. Um, yes. And that became a bit of a scene because in Fremen culture, they want the baby to cry up front, up first, like cry as you are born and then cry no more. Um, and they thought that the baby hadn't got it done crying enough when she came up and touched it. Mm. 
I mean, some traditions are bullshit. You know, when the, <laughs> let me tell you, when the bride cries and they're like, yeah, get it all done now so your marriage is happy, it's bullshit. Lots of crying to follow. Okay. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I love this. First of all, we already know from the last chapter, Cheney saying, hey, they're kind of calling your sister a witch. Just a heads up. She's weird and witchy, you know. And now she's touching babies as they're being born. I mean, try that. Just try that in any puritanical culture. You're in deep shit. And not only just touching the baby, evidently touching the baby and it instantaneously stops crying and becomes soothed and calm from just the single touch of this two-year-old witch child. <laughs> We're going to call it two-year-old witch Einstein. <laughs> she just touches the baby. It's like, <laughs> silence. As soon as it touches. Did you kill it? Oh, okay. No, it's fine. <laughs> Caprica 6, miniseries, BSG. Was there a little cracking noise? It sounded like celery. And you put the baby back in the carriage. Oops. I don't know my own robot strength. <laughs> That's not the case here. Um, but this is wild because she says all, all the stuff about her, her manner of speaking, her grasp of language, uh, the, the insult, and then stopping the baby crying. Right. And like you said, they're supposed to get the crying out as babies. And this is greatly frowned upon. Not only are you not supposed to soothe the baby. So imagine this just from a, just, just imagine one Fremen, Matthew, for some reason forgets and they go, oh, that poor baby. And they pick it up and like, da, da, dee, da, 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 dee, dee, and they make it stop crying. The other one would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> Let it cry. Let the baby cry. Put the baby down. You ruined the whole thing. That Fremen would probably <laughs> you, be. You, you with ruined your, this perfectly good baby. <laughs> you ruined this perfectly good baby with your nonsensical caring <laughs> now we gotta the, now we gotta turn it into water and drink it that's it you ruined this baby otherwise they just jam a bunch of straws in it <laughs> <laughs> we are fremen we are fremen that's what they chant when they do it <laughs> all of a man's water leah kynes's words ringing in their heads all of a baby's water <laughs> but no i think it would be it is pretty wild you know this idea of just that would be a problem, let alone a two-year-old witch Einstein who touches <laughs> it and it stops crying. <laughs> right. Right. It's disturbing to them. He cried enough, Aaliyah said. So she asserts herself here. I just wanted to feel his spark, his life. That's all. And when he felt me, he didn't want to cry anymore. Yeah. So just as like, so the baby's okay. Even Jessica's like, wait, wait, wait. The baby's okay? I just want to... <laughs> Let's go can back. You catch no, me up here? The baby's good? <laughs> did my little witch genius kill the baby? <laughs> let's, just, let's just go ahead and cross that bridge now. Did the witch, did the witch baby cause ma, the, the newborn to grow horns or scales or float up in the air twirling around? What, what's the damage? Yeah. Stopped crying? <laughs> well, that's not too bad. But uh, healthy as any mother could ask, Parrot tells her. They not only didn't hurt the baby, they didn't so much mind her touching him. He settled down right away and was happy. But Jessica, and she, and Howard's about to continue, and Jessica goes, just goes, oh, the strangeness of, of my daughter. That's what it is, right? Yeah, just the, the strangeness of her. Yeah. yeah. She goes on to talk about how the child looked like some other child on Bella to Goose, which is, which even, they're like, how do you know? You, how would you know that? And Lee's like, but, but he does. He looks just like this baby on this other world. And you're like, what? Stop. You're freaking me out. I want to put you outside with the trash. 
<laughs> you almost <laughs> trashed our baby. Now we're going to have to trash you. Exactly. Getting weird. Yeah. But what we find out, what, what Jessica confirms for us about Aaliyah, which I think is really interesting, is when she she's you know looking at Hera and seeing how much it, it really disturbs her. And she thinks, what have I born? Jessica yes. asked herself. A daughter who knew at birth everything that I knew and more. Everything revealed to her out of the corridors of the past by the reverend mothers within me. So now we, it confirms for us that not only does – I think there's three things actually to note. Not only does Aaliyah have her own self-new experiences of, of being a person that's alive, she also has everything that her mother has ever experienced and all of her mother's most intimate memories and everything she's ever learned. And she also has – all the experiences of all the reverend mothers going all the way back in time, as far back as that goes. So this child is thousands of people. <laughs> like that's how this child started out. It awoke into consciousness by almost instantaneously becoming fused with thousands of other consciousnesses. Indeed. And I think when you say it that way, it should be a stark reminder to people that that's Jessica too. Yes. Yes, that's Jessica that's too. They have the same exact, their exactitude there is the same. Yeah. 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 They have, yeah, they, they share that. And to make matters worse, she, it isn't just the thing she says, but it's the way she behaves. She can move one muscle behind her nose. She can move one muscle on the back of her finger. She can do this body control. It's just unnerving. She can look down and be like, oh, my forearm is flexing or, or, oh, I can contort my face a certain way. This is the Benny Gesserit training. This she is can, exercising. <laughs> it's wild. She can flip you off with her toes. Yeah. One of those people. <laughs> <laughs> you, ever, you ever heard Rachmaninoff played by baby toes? Huh? Come by you later tonight. <laughs> you haven't lived. Aliyah. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's, there's, there's rumors, man. They're calling her a demon. Other children aren't playing with her. And, you know, Jessica says something. She's so little in common with the other children. She's no demon. It's just that Inhara interrupts. Of course she's not. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. Because what do we have? Let's, let's back this scene up a minute. Hara shows up with Aaliyah and says, Aaliyah's been XYZ. Aaliyah insults Hara because she's a petulant two-year-old, despite her lifetime of, of everything you just described. Yeah. Yeah. All those things. But the second that... Jessica has to reiterate that she's not a demon to Hera. Hera responds with such vehemence at the idea that it's almost comforting to Jessica. Because despite the way the rumors are going about Aaliyah, despite Aaliyah's behavior towards Hera, Hera's still saying, she is not a demon, period. I know this. Right. Feels, feels sort of sense of protection over her, too. And, and respect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like whatever, it. whatever she is, whatever makes her strange, and whatever she knows does not make her something wrong, right? Yeah. Um, the 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 conversation here flips towards, you know, you remember my household, but she's like, I'm not sure I will be much longer. So Harris telling mom, I don't think I will be much longer because I don't share your son's bed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is like the this is like when the creepy guy like tries to get chummy with the girl's dad so he can get better access to the girl. Right? <laughs> it's kind of a creepy move, Hera. You're like, yeah, your son just doesn't want me. I don't know what it is. Aren't I great? <laughs> just kidding. Hera's not actually doing that. <laughs> She's just being matter of fact by suggesting I'm just not going to be in your house much longer. 
Not because Harry's going to walk away, because her assumption is that Paul is going to dismiss her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. But um, this is where the discussion comes up about the stuff discussed earlier, which is this religion, unification of the tribes, uniting the tribes. They start talking about this, don't they? Yeah. You think I don't know what you plan for your son, Harris says? (laughs) And she puts it on Jessica. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That that there there that she has this grand plan of uniting them under capital H him, mm. yeah, yeah, and uh, well, the danger that is seen for Paul is tied to Aaliyah. Aaliyah is part of the danger that's foreseen for Paul, even from Hera. Hera is the one who says it. I see danger for him. Yeah, because of the rumors, because of the things people are talking about, because of the mixed feelings on the religion, because of the mixed feelings on his sister, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I do love when Hera describes talking about what it was like uh, when they first were learning about the strangeness of, of Aaliyah. You know, that she, we knew from the first what we were, when, sorry, the way she knew from the first what we were saying to her. When there, when there, has there been another baby who knew the water discipline so young? Yep. What other baby's first words to her nurse were, I love you, Hera? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's wild. Yeah. So, there's this moment where Elias says to mom, we need Hera, correct? Yeah. We made a mistake and now we need Hera. We made a mistake and now we need Hera. That's correct. This comes back relatively quickly, which I like about, which is another part of this chapter that interests me, that despite Hera's warning to Jessica about Aaliyah, Jessica notes that Hera still fiercely is protective of the child. Jessica also notes that when Aaliyah said that they need Hera, that this is what she was referring to, correct? If Aaliyah has the awareness and knowledge of Jessica plus the Reverend Mothers who came before, right? Yeah. Then she could easily understand Hera and her intent. Think about that. Aaliyah can read Hera like a book. She knows her intent. She has the knowledge to know it. And for all intents and purposes, I guess you'd call this being able to read her deeply. She's able to trust her. Which trust means need, (laughs) right? If we trust this person, we probably need them in the times to come. And this doesn't seem to be surprising to Jessica at all, actually, because of her own awareness of Aaliyah and Hara likely confirming Aaliyah's considerations, which I like. Wait, say say that last part again? So she, she is, let me pull up my notes again. Basically, what we're having here is, this doesn't seem to be surprising, Jessica, as her own awareness of Aaliyah and Hera confirm Aaliyah's considerations. I think I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because, in other words, Jessica's not surprised because Jessica has awareness of both Aaliyah and Hera. So she knows that this is true anyway. She's like, yeah, this makes sense because I'm tracking what you guys are putting down because I have the same awareness that Aaliyah does. I see what Aaliyah sees in Hera. I understand that we do, in fact, need her, and I understand why. It's almost like an intuitive thing that Aaliyah confirms. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. On that same wavelength. Yep. But um, yeah, Aaliyah recounts her own birth, how she describes it as waking up from a sleep, except she could not remember going to sleep. Uh, it's so fascinating. That's wild. It's th- This again gets back to what I was talking about of like describing abstraction really, really well. Mm. And I mean, describing coming into being conscious. Um that's fascinating to me. The idea of, you know, she just describes it as saying, like you said, I woke up. It was like waking from sleep, except I couldn't remember where I was going to sleep. And I was in a warm, dark place and I was frightened. 
Um, so they're like just giving it this idea of sensation that it's warm and it's dark. Um, I just love, I love the setup of it and how it's like almost like we kind of go back through what happened in the moat scene. Indeed. From Aaliyah's perspective. Right. And, and feeling her mother's emotions and, and, and feeling that she was being soothed by her mm-hmm. um, and realizing that that was her mother. Uh, it's great. It's just great stuff. So, uh, again, this is just like getting into to the thick of details that only sci-fi can get to. Yeah. And she, she later refers to this as not being able to do anything else. She couldn't reject or hide her consciousness or shut it off. Everything just happened. Everything. I, I liken this to perhaps somebody like Lieutenant Commander Data or pick your android. You turn them on for the first time and boom, their yeah. awareness is present. They didn't have to grow up. They're just there, right? Yeah. I was not there and then I was there. It, it, it's, it's this flipping of a switch almost with Aaliyah. Right, right, exactly. Mm. It's like her own individual big bang. She remembers it. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, we also learned that it was Ramadan in April on Bella Tagus. Um, they, they, they exchange a couple of pleasantries here. They, they're saying some prayer. And um, this is where Reverend Mother was called upon by Thrarthar, one of Silgar's wives. And she says, there is trouble. Oh, goody. <laughs> there is word from the sand, Thrarthar said. Usul meets the maker for his test. It is today. The young men say he cannot fail. He will be a sand rider by nightfall. The young men are banding for a razia. They will raid in the north and meet Usul there. They say they will raise the cry then. They say they will force him to call out Stilgar and assume command of the tribes. Dude, I think it's worth reading what comes after that too. Please do. Because this is Jessica's thoughts about it. She says, gathering water, planting the dunes, changing their world slowly but surely, these are no longer enough. Jessica thought. The little raids, the certain raids, these are no longer enough now that Paul and I have trained them. They feel <laughs> their power. They want to fight. Of and again, I think this is that sensation that Paul has of terrible purpose taking form and starting to pick up momentum on its own. This is what that is. This is, yes. you know, that that mood, that spirit, that uh that you can almost say the sense of morale among uh the Fremen is now getting more and more charged up and getting to this. Yeah. This this esprit de corps uh, is, is being revamped up and they are ready to flex that strength. And it's going to be like, kind of like we've been talking about, even if Paul died at this point, would that be enough to stop the Fremen on going on a crusade? Like it's probably the rock has already started to roll down the hill. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. And it and, and it goes back to something else we talked about earlier, which is just they've only known rage and despair. Yeah. <laughs> and so much of that rage is probably the inability to exert themselves. Yeah, fully. And now they're like, oh, we got the power now. We got that shit. We're going to take it. Think of the injustices they face. Now, remember, we might be thinking, what injustices? They seem to live fine out here. No big deal. Yes. When the Atreides came, yes. But the Atreides stay here was very short. Yeah. It was 80 years under Vladimir Harkonnen, and he was brutal. <laughs> brutal. 80 years. Brutal. A brutal 80 years for the Fremen people under the yoke of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Yeah. And they are, uh, they're ready. They feel the strength. 
they're ready to do something about it now. Because also they, I mean, think about just how absolutely horned up for violence they've got to be against the Harkonnens now that absolutely. they that they thought they got rid of them and then they came back again <laughs> and are fucking shit up even harder and worse this time. Yep. Oh, uh, they're so ready for vengeance. Yep. The young men say if Usul does not call out Silvar, then he must be afraid. Right? And Jessica thinks, well, I saw this coming as did Stilgar, right? But it's not the way they want this to be done. It's 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 coming to be that Usha will may may have no choice in this matter. He may have no choice but to call Stilgar based on the way, as you described, these men are ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too that she we we come to think or come to see that Jessica thinks Paul will have to handle it himself. The Reverend Mother dare not become involved in the succession. So that's like outside of her purview. Like she that's doesn't right. have say over that. Um, yep. Something that has to be handled among among them. That doesn't mean Jessica's not going to meddle. Because what does she do? She dispatches <laughs> she, Aaliyah. She Benny Jesuit, baby. <laughs> send out the send out the girl child. My Sayadina spy. <laughs> <laughs> send out my little witch Einstein. Get her going. <laughs> She'll handle this. Demon genius. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, Jessica notes that this is not what they want right now because she notes the tribe needs all its strength. And her assumption is, is this will divide the tribes. This will cause less strength, not more. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. This will just be causing more turmoil at a time when they're still needing to rebuild and get ready together, you know, with a really unified front. Yeah. So, you think my personal feelings, Harris says, entered into my judgment. How wrong you are. Perhaps you think as well that I regret not being chosen of Uso, that I am jealous of Cheney, right? And Harris continues by saying, I actually pity Cheney. And yeah. Jessica wonders, what do you mean? She says, because I know what you think of her. You think she's not the wife for your son, to which Jessica replies, perhaps. You could be right, Harris said. If you are, you may find a surprising ally, Cheney herself. She wants what's best for him. Capital H. <laughs> That's some real deep love, right? Yeah. In other words, if Cheney came to the realization that she was not as good for Paul as maybe she should be, and that Paul would be better with somebody else, that she would suddenly become very attractive to Jessica and Jessica to her because... Both Jessica and Cheney want what's best for Paul. And if Cheney is convinced that she isn't the one, Hara's like, she'll be loyal to Paul's happiness more than she will be to her own feelings. Yeah. That, I yeah. mean, that's a level of maturity and awareness that's just non-existent until you get to that part of the relationship where you don't like each other anymore. And that's just what you say to make each other feel good. You know, <laughs> like, I just want you to be happy. <laughs> but imagine in the midst of like their passion, if that was a consideration that had to be made, that would be devastating devastating yeah yeah that's a really good point i hadn't really thought of it that way it's wild well that concludes chapter 41 matthew we're moving on to a pretty short chapter in chapter 42 where uh, i believe paul's gonna become a sand rider sand rider all right mr anderson this brings us to chapter 42 and i believe you are up to read You cannot avoid the interplay of politics within an orthodox religion. 
This power struggle permeates the training, educating, and disciplining of the Orthodox community. Because of this pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face that ultimate internal question, to succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their rule, or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the Orthodox ethic. From Muad'Dib, The Religious Issues, by the Princess Irulan. This is funny, because this gets back to everything that Jessica was talking about with Paul, correct? I think so, because I only understand, I think, about 70% of <laughs> what I read. <laughs> I know what you mean. The power struggle permeates the training, education, and disciplining of the Orthodox community. The power struggle between politics within the Orthodox religion, right? <clears throat> yeah. In other words, the struggle between the two forces actually infects the training, education, and disciplining of the Orthodox community. And the leaders of these communities must face that ultimate internal question to succumb to complete opportunism at the price of maintaining their rule or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the Orthodox ethic. Oh, you know, I think I only Mm. just now understand what it means by succumbing to the complete, to complete opportunism, AKA succumbing to the temptation to get into bed with politics. Correct. Right. Okay. A hundred percent. Yep. Okay. There you go. That makes more sense now. So this chapter really, well, let me pause for just a second. If you guys are in here, feel free to go into the casual watch room. Um, By all means, Uh, we scheduled this and they had a casual watch scheduled. We would be more than happy if you guys go there, hang out with them. They're going to watch the the Batman ahead of our recording on um, Thursday. So we will not be offended if you guys jump ship. Yeah, get after it. Get after it. So this Paul, this, this chapter really, Matt, dives into Paul and him riding the worm, becoming a sand rider. This is that moment. This is the moment that they've been discussing for two chapters pretty solidly. Yeah. Yeah. That this is the looming, you know, test and threat for Paul, that this is, this is the next part of accomplishing accomplishing really being assimilated into their culture too that like this Indeed. is a this is a marker of of manhood that you haven't passed so you need to now do this this right. is required of you good <clears throat> news as we said in the last chapter you're a legend either way <laughs> no matter what happens even if you're completely squashed to raspberry jam by a gigantic <laughs> space worm you'll still be a legend He's sitting here thinking it's only minutes away now, filling the morning with the friction hissing of its passage. Its great teeth within the cavern circle of its mouth spread like some enormous flower. The spice odor from it dominated the air. Oh, it's so cool. And Paul is just waiting. And he's thinking back on some of the things Silgar said. Obviously, he's standing out here alone for just a moment. But, um... I like this. Half a meter for every meter of the maker's diameter. Why? Because you want to avoid the vortex of its passing and still have time to run in and mount it. Think about that. <clears throat> we already said this thing's about a mile and a half long, right? Yeah. Yeah. The vortex of its passing? Of course. This thing is a, mm, a force of nature. It's <laughs> going to cause a vortex that you could easily succumb to if you're too close to it. So you want to be just outside of it and still have the timing to approach it and then begin the process of getting on top of it. Yeah. 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 Seems extremely difficult. (laughs) It seems extremely difficult. 
Paul breathed deeply, smelling mineral bitterness of sand, even through his filters. That's intense. The wild maker, the old man of the desert, Matthew, loomed almost on him. It's cresting from its cresting front segments through a sand wave that would sweep across his knees. <clears throat> the wave lifted his feet, surface dust swept across him. He steadied himself, his world dominated by the passage of that sand clouded curving wall, that segmented cliff, the ring line sharply defined in it. I love this. His world dominated by the passage. Yeah, the, everything you can see. It's like, you know, beyond being a dead front of an IMAX screen, it takes up your entire view. Everything is this worm passing. Indeed. <clears throat> and uh, Paul begins this. He finds himself, uh, he, he, he does what he's supposed to do for all intents and purposes. He plants his hooks and uh, to ensure the worm wouldn't roll and crush him. <clears throat> and then he found himself riding upright atop the worm. He felt exultant, like an emperor surveying the world. He suppressed a sudden urge to cavort there, to turn the worm, to show off his mastery of this creature. Suddenly, he understood why Silver had warned him once about brash young men who danced and played with these monsters, doing handstands on their backs, removing both hooks and replanting them before the worm could spill them. Right? Paul gets it. You're up there. Yeah. You did it. Your confidence is immediate. The second you do a difficult thing, you then realize I can do a difficult thing. And that's compounded by the fact that this is culture. This is their culture. Yeah. Yeah. You've accomplished, you know, integrating into it in a sense. Yeah. Um, you have passed the test. Passed the test. Rites of passage. You don't really hear about these with any meaning much anymore. You hear about people being, you know, hazed and stupid shit like that, but that's that's nothing. That's just denigration, humiliation most of the time. This is a true accomplishment to earn your right as true Fremen. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and I love how, you know, it's noted too that Paul passes the, the real test, which is the instant of realizing whether or not you planted the hook correctly. Like that's like the final fatal, you know, the moment that everything hinges on is how you well you get those hooks in there. And that's yep. it. Once he does it, he's he has passed it. He has proven himself. Even though I do enjoy that once <clears throat> yeah, once Stilgar gets on top of there with him, climbs up the side of the worm, which also I didn't realize that this was going to be sort of an operation like this, how they were going to pass by the other riders and they were going to climb up onto the worm. I was like, oh, cool. Like That surprised me because I thought this was just Paul's test, Paul right. to, to get up on top of the worm. I didn't even realize the process, which I think is a really cool kind of revelation in this chapter of just the whole team effort of you know, steering and, and manning one of these worms. Mm -hmm. Um Paul like up on it first. That's the main test. Right. And then once right. the rest there from and follow, it's a different test. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And we'll get into that as, as we go through it. But I like how, you know, we kind of are introduced to positions uh, of people huh. as they're on the word, uh, the worm. Stilgar get, lets him have their little. He tells him, look, there was drum sand to your left. This is sloppy. What are you doing? And Paul's <laughs> like, oh, I saw it. <laughs> and uh, Stilgar's like, then why did you not signal for one of us to take a position secondary to you? It was a thing you could you could do even in the test. And uh, well, Paul kind of feels bad here. And then Stilgar goes in on him a little bit more. But um, 
but Paul knows he's telling the truth. And Paul, right. despite being angry, despite having this robber, this moment robbed from him a little bit, and maybe robbed is the wrong way to say it because nothing. This isn't. This is honesty here. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he just exactly. has to. He's forced to say it won't happen again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I think it's it's it's. It's interesting here, this emphasis that, that Stogar has on working together. He, he's like, you know, use your second person, work together, mm-hmm. work with us. Like, you know, let's all do this, this thing together. Um, whereas I, I think maybe, maybe I'm reading a little too much into this. It's possible, but maybe that's a bit of a sign of Paul's kind of like following, <clears throat> falling down this path of being the singular martyr legend that he acts, mm-hmm. you know, so singularly like that, that maybe. That is like he's kind of falling into that temptation almost and, and forgetting that it's like, no, you're a part of our, our team. Let's all work together together in this. <clears throat> Getting lost in the moment. Maybe. Like, like, the, like the boys did before him. And maybe even less of an excuse for Paul because he's older. You know, it could be part of it too. Yeah. But I like the, uh, I like how, it, it's, you know what it is? It's very, um, don't leave your wingman, Maverick. <laughs> right, right. Like we get it, you're awesome, but. You got goose killed, right? <laughs> Not as cool. Less cool when you <laughs> when you endanger the lives of other people. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. <clears throat> and then um, it gets to a point where Stoker says, "Very good, Moldier. With plenty of practice, you may yet become a sand rider." And Paul was like, "But I was the first one up." And then the laughter erupts. The troop chants, flinging his name against the sky. Muadib, Muadib. So. Stilgar does give him a little uh, levity here, right? He teases him a little bit and he says something that he knows isn't true. He knows that Paul is, in fact, literally a sand rider. He was the first up. And this, of course, causes the troop to laugh because Stilgar was just kind of taking the piss out of him a little bit here. Right, right. Yeah. That's good shit. <laughs> it's good shit. I like that because it because it because you want Paul to crack a smile here, not just be told how much he fucked up. Yeah, exactly. That yes, this was a success. You did pass yeah. the test. Yep. And he's told, "I am you uh, I am a sand rider still." Like Paul needs that approval and he tells him, "You are a sand rider this day." Yeah. And then he gets to choose where they go. <clears throat> because he is the first one, you know, on the on the worm and the person essentially captaining this particular voyage mm-hmm. while they're on this worm. So he gets to decide where they're headed. And he wants to go south. And this is where he brings up the idea of, well, I want to head 20 thumpers south. You know, That's right. I, I, I would see this land we make, this land that I've only seen through the eyes of others. So Paul <laughs> wants to, to see his son and see his family. That's right. Yep, that makes complete sense. And this is where Stilgar starts to wonder what's going on here. He keeps a steady gaze on Paul. And Paul keeps his attention on Cheney, seeing the interest quicken in her face, noting also the excitement his words had rekindled in the troop. Um, the men are eager to raid with you in the Harkonnen sinks, Stilgar said. The sinks are only a thumper away. And Paul says, while the Fedekin have raided with me, they'll raid with me again until no Harkonnen breathes air. And Stilgar kind of studies him, wondering for just a moment. And, and even Paul thinks, ah, he's heard rumors of unrest among the young Fremen. And that's when Selgar says, do you wish a gathering of our leaders? Which is essentially the subtext of, are you going to challenge me? Yeah. Do you want to challenge me in front of our leadership? <laughs> right. Yeah. You cannot guess what I want. <laughs> and that's when Paul has a crux. He can't back down, but he has to hold control. So yeah. how does he do this? Because Stilgar's really 
almost opening the invitation to be challenged by suggesting things like, you are Mudir of the sand ride this day, cold formality rings in his voice. How do you use this power? And that's when Paul's thinking, we really need to relax. We really need reflection here. He's thinking this. He's thinking, oh, there's this precipice. I mean, you know, that that attention before altercation and right. an altercation that you're confident you can win, but you're like, but this isn't the right way. There's a better way here. And Paul continues by saying, we shall go south, right? And that's it. And there will be a gathering. And still, Paul's like, he thinks I call him out and he knows he cannot stand against me. He still thinks this. He still thinks that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because, I in, not- well, I was just going to say, you know, <clears throat> I think it's important to remember that in Stilgar's mind, that's the way things are done. And, and that's, how, that's how he came to power and, you know, through one-on-one challenge. And so that's how their, their culture works. Like, so he has every reason in the world to expect, okay, well, this is, this is kind of, it's like, he's almost nudging it along himself. He's nudging his own challenger because he's like, well, this is kind of what you're supposed to do. He's, he's in a sense, he's helping him understand their culture. Right. By putting his neck on the goddamn chopping block. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) That's pretty determined. Yeah. Yeah. Paul thinks to himself, I will not call him out if it can be helped. If there's another way to prevent the jihad. So Paul's thinking he doesn't want to do this, which gets back to some of his mother's wisdom, which is like, we don't want to bust up the tribe right now. We don't want to cause this problem right now, even though tradition may demand it if, and if they're not careful, enforce it, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Got to find some way to prevent this, even if it feels like what you're doing is enabling it. <laughs> That's right. So off they continue. 20 thumpers. Uh, the way led far beyond the Harkonnen patrols. One day as they went, there'd be a faint change of color on the far horizon, such a slight change that he might feel he was imagining it out of his hopes, and there would be the new CH. Does my decision suit Moadib? Stilgar asked, only the faintest touch of sarcasm tinging in his voice. But the Fremen ears were perked up at this sarcasm. They reached it. And, and this gets back to Stilgar basically says, we'll camp for the evening meal and prayer at the cave of birds beneath Habanya Ridge. And then there's a bunch of thought. And then he says, does my decision suit Moadib? With a sarcasm, with a bit of a sarcasm that the Fremen pick up on because they think challenge is in the air. Mm, yeah. And Stilgar says, in Paul says, Stilgar heard me swear loyalty to him when he, when we consecrated the Fede Keen, Paul said, my death commanders know I spoke with honor. Does Stilgar doubt it? And of course. Stilgar does not doubt it. He would never doubt Paul. And I think by explicitly bringing this out into the open, it quells a little bit of attention in this moment. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That, that is, it's a, a moment of Paul bringing it out for everybody to, to, to have to acknowledge. They have yeah. to acknowledge. Because everyone's like, we hear this. We hear the subtext here. We see the body language. We have the awareness. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? And Paul just says, this, there is no doubt of my honor. Do you agree? Silver says, of course. And there is no challenge at this point, right? You are Paul Moadib, the Atreides Duke, and you are the Lisan al-Gahib, the voice from the outer world. These men, I don't even know. Pretty cool. <laughs> <clears throat> so this gets to them kind of having a quick, quiet discussion. And um, yeah, <laughs> Paul basically just tells him, I'm your friend, Stilgar. And Stilgar's like, well, no man doubts it. No man doubts it. They know we're friends. Yeah. We know we're friends. <clears throat> and uh, they kind of let this... Paul saw that Silgar was too immersed in the Fremen way to consider the possibility of any other. That's important, right? 
Here, yeah. a leader took the reins from the dead hands of his predecessor, a slew among the strongest of his tribe, as you were saying earlier, Matt. If a leader died in the desert, Silga had risen to be a name in that way. We should leave this marker in deep sand, Paul said. Yes, Silga agreed. We could walk to the cave from here. We've ridden, we've ridden him far enough that he'll bury himself and sulk for a day or so. You're the mundir of the sand ride, Silga said. Say when, say when we, and then he breaks off. And this discussion is abruptly interrupted by an ornithopter. Way out here. Way out. Yeah. Way out here. And but, this is a problem. I like, the, I like this immediate change of pace. I like this immediate change of consideration here. Could be a scout. Do you think they've seen us at this distance? We looked like just a worm, right? So mm-hmm. think about this. If you're in the cockpit of an ornithopter and you see a worm and you're far enough away, you don't see people on its back. And Stilgar surmises that that's about the distance we have. So we're still safe from being spotted. Right, right. But too far away. They do have to get off the worm and scatter because the ornithopter is closing. And what ornithopter wouldn't want to get a better look at a worm? Mm, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. And they have to be on, they have to keep the worm on the surface just to even ride the thing. Um, because yeah. that was, you know, one thing I didn't even, we didn't even get into, but I think it was so cool is how the process of what keeps the you able to stay on the worm, how the hooks, the purpose of the hooks is not just for you to have purchase on the worm to hang on to. It's also to pull open the rings of the worm and expose the soft, like more vulnerable inside so that the yes. worm does not turn that side of itself into the sand and go underground because it would hurt. It would sting the worm for that sand to go into those areas. So it's very important that these hooks pull back these pieces of the worm. And so that it will expose that section of its body to the air instead of the sand. And I just thought that was such a fucking cool explanation of how, cause I, I, I kept wondering, I was like, you know, before this chapter, I was like, what is keeping the worms like they use <laughs> hooks to get on the worms. What the hell is keeping the worm from just diving back under the ground and just pulling you with it and, and destroying you? Like, what Indeed. is that? What's the explanation there? And I thought that was such a good, succinct, realistic explanation. I thought that Peeling was very those cool. back exposing its underbelly, so to speak. Right. Right. I was just like, yeah. ah, what a great explanation. Yeah. It's awesome. So down they go. And, uh, they uh, they heard the beat of the thopper's wings before they saw it. There was a whisper of jet pods, and it came over this patch of desert, turned in a broad arc toward the ridge. An unmarked thopper, Paul noted. Hmm. Unmarked. And they think, Stilgar wonders, smuggler craft? So it seems, says Paul, but this deep into the desert for smugglers? They have their difficulties with patrols too, Stilgar suggests. However, Paul says, if they come this deep, they may go deeper. True. And they say it wouldn't be well for them to see what they could see if they ventured too deep into the south. Smugglers sell information too, right? So like, well, it could be a smuggler. Why? So I was like, well, patrols, Arcona patrols are probably a little more stringent, right? Yeah. And if they come this deep, they could sell information if they spot us. So even a smuggler who's not your enemy might sell information to the Harkonnen if they get it. Like, right. oh, look, there's Fremen out here. If you want to go fuck them up, give us some money. Yeah, exactly. Could even be a bargaining chip for them to to have just that information. Yeah. They were hunting spice, don't you think? Stilgar asked. To which Paul says, there will be a wing and a crawler waiting somewhere for that one. We've spice. Let's bait a patch of sand and catch us some smugglers. They should be taught that this is our land and our men need practice with their new weapons. <laughs> now Usul speaks, Stilgar said. Usul thinks Fremen. So good. 
Paul's idea. Paul's like, let's trap them. We think they might be hunting. Still, I was like, they might be hunting spice, which is a very reasonable conclusion. And uh, Paul's like, well, let's let's trap them then. Let's get them. And this this speaks to Stilgar's Fremen ways. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's a good Fremen trap right there. Mm-hmm. But Uso must give way to decisions that match a terrible purpose, Paul thought. And the storm was gathering. <laughs> you know, I really did think you were reading that as Paul from the Beatles for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> but who shall most avoid the decisions that match a terrible purpose? <laughs> but uh, that concludes 43, sir. Right? Yes, indeed. So next time on the pod, we'll be doing chapters 44, 45, and 46. Right? Yeah. No, that was 42. Sorry. <laughs> See, this is why I confuse myself. Oh. We'll be doing, next, we'll be doing, did I say that right? Help me out here. We'll be doing Actually, 43 next, 44 and 45. All right? So 43, yes. 44, 45, and then 46, 47, 48. So episode 12, the next episode you're reading is for chapters 43, 44, and 45. And then for the last episode, it'll be chapters 46, 47, and 48. So 43... If you don't know, because you're using a different book, 43 starts with, when law and duty are one, united by religion, okay? 44 is, how often is it that the angry man rages denial of what his inner self is telling him? And then 45 is, and it came to pass in the third year of the desert war that Paul Muad'Dib lay alone. That's all I'm going to say there. So those are your next chapters. And then the last three chapters after that. So that would be for anybody who's reading the paperback, the new paperback, um, uh, Penguin Edition, the orange book. Um, that would be pages 663 to 725. Nice. I'm on the Kindle version and it's saying I'm on also is on 663. Cool. Ooh. Sometimes they don't always match up. So there we go. There bing, it, baby. Bing, boom. Awesome. Yeah, 663 in my book too, Matthew. So that's good news. And you said through what? 725. Yep, same in my book too. Cool. Cool. I didn't realize that was going to be a thing. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll We'll have that out in two, three weeks, I'd say. Nice. From the, rec- from the release of this. And that, as they say, is that. So thank you, Mr. Anderson. This has been a fun ride. And um, these are great chapters, man. This book continues to impress me oh, yeah. with uh, the writing. It's just so good. And the story oh, yeah. takes shape. And it's funny because you feel like, boy, there's only six chapters left. That's not a lot. What's going right. to happen? So well, how's, much. How's it going to conclude? So how's much the story has been end? A, Yeah. <laughs> so much has been established. And I just don't know how it's all going to actually come together. Yeah. Well, that was tons of fun. And uh, that's it. We will see you guys in a few weeks' time, and uh, we thank you for your continued participation in uh, the Mind Killer Dune podcasts. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes if you get a second. That would be great. And check us out on Discord. We did something we've never done before. We recorded this on Discord, LewisStreetGeek.net slash Discord. And uh, we record all of our podcasts there, and maybe the rest of Dune will be recording there as well. If you want to hang out with us while we record, see our faces, you can do that. 
And uh, what you didn't know about this episode is, boy, there were some pretty funny outtakes this week. We tried to read a chapter heading a half a dozen times. We were riddled with the laughter and Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonations. And uh, yeah, that's what you're missing out if you don't come to the live shows. But we're going to get out of here. And uh, that's that. Matt, tell these wonderful, wonderful people goodbye. We bid you all adieu. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord.